it's important to keep in mind that we're always training more than muscles. So if you think of that workout, like maybe you're going to go do like an aerobic capacity thing for two hours, like that physiological adaptation is going to stick around for three weeks, maybe, and it's going to fade. It's going to go away in any workout in isolation. Physiologically doesn't matter that much. It's the overall trend or pattern that matters, but you're also at the same time training that skill of perseverance, of doing a hard thing when the right thing is hard, of when the weather is super shitty, when you could have any opportunity to, to make an excuse and quit and feel okay about it, you're developing the ability to push through and do the hard thing anyway. And that, that mental pattern of what you do in a difficult moment, what choices you make, is going to stick around a lot longer than that isolated physiological adaptation. And it's a lot more important in the long run. Because if you have someone who's got great physiology, but they give up as soon as it's hard or it's raining or their feet hurt or whatever, like they're screwed. They're not going to make it anywhere. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is Craig Weller, and he talks with Paul about facing real life challenges and lessons from elite soldiers. Craig is a former US Navy Special Warfare combatant crewman. He is also certified under the Department of State's Worldwide Personal Protective Service, too, and has spent nearly two years on the High Threat Protection Team for the U.S. Ambassador to Baghdad in Iraq. Along with Jonathan Pope, he co-founded Ethos Colorado Training Center, a full-service strength and conditioning facility based in Denver. Prior to that, he founded Barefoot Fitness in South Dakota, with two training facilities based on minimalistic principles developed while training special operations personnel in austere locations. Nowadays, Craig is a Precision Nutrition Level 2 Certified Nutrition Coach and works with Precision Nutrition as a curriculum writer while overseeing and designing their exercise systems. Craig is the co-author of Building the Elite, a comprehensive textbook for developing resilient special operators. And Paul thought his book was very thorough, well laid out, well written, and full of practical information anyone can use, including those seeking entry to elite military services, athletes training for extreme athletic events, or, as Paul and Craig discuss at length in this podcast, being adequately prepared for adverse events that are very possible in the turbulent world environment we are in today. Paul really wanted to get some inside advice from an elite soldier who has completed multiple tours of duty about how to be well prepared for any of the potentially dangerous events that may unfold in anyone's life in the rapidly changing and often confusing and scary environment we live in today. Paul and Craig talk about many topics, including an extensive array of highly effective preparation, training, and physical, emotional, and mental stealth management strategies, tips, and techniques anyone can use to enhance their athletic or work performance. They take an up-close look at how elite military operators are trained from the ground up, so they are focused, clear-headed, durable, and reliable. And they also discuss what separates dropouts from top achievers in military training and why many of the dropouts would have achieved their goals if they had the kind of training Craig offers in his book, Building the Elite. They also talk about the reason military basic training is specifically designed to be physically, emotionally and mentally demanding and why so many don't make it through, particularly in the more advanced military programs for special operators. Paul and Craig talk about tips for overcoming your fears and how to differentiate being stupid tough from skilled toughness and readiness and why stupid tough often leads to disabling unnecessary injuries. 
Craig shares some excellent tips for improving general stress management and strategies to make seemingly insurmountable tasks and objectives realistically manageable and achievable. They discuss what diet and lifestyle choices hinder or help readiness in any environment and some key food, water and basic resources everyone should have on hand. And finally, some strategies Craig recommends to be both in the world but not caught in it versus being of the world so that sanity can be maintained and unnecessary stress-related illness and breakdown are avoided. Get out a notepad and be fully present. The information in this podcast, if applied, is sure to enhance all aspects of your life and may very well save your life or your family's life one day. So get ready for facing real-life challenges, lessons from elite soldiers with Craig Weller. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, I have a very interesting guest for you. And our title today is Facing Real-Life Challenges, Lessons from Elite Soldiers. Our guest today is Craig Weller. And as you heard in Penny's introduction, he has a lot of experience with elite military training and is a uh, close protection specialist, which most of us would think of as a bodyguard. And so I thought, what a great opportunity to talk to Craig. And he's also written an excellent book. It's a big, comprehensive book, beautifully, beautifully done, color, very similar in its layout to my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, with lots of diagrams and pictures and makes you feel like you're right there with these guys doing all this elite military training. And his book is Building the Elite, The Complete Guide to Building Resilient Special Operators. And though the book's really about uh, a lot about how you condition and work with the mindset and all the important things to build elite soldiers, it's very, very applicable to the issues of today and I thought, having uh, lived the life of a soldier myself and having been through enough intense military training to know the techniques, the strategies, the tactics, that a lot of what's in uh, Craig's book is really applicable to all of us for even just achieving our goals, staying focused, not falling off the wagon, getting trapped into addictions. But more importantly, the environment that we're in today worldwide is is a very changing environment, and it's left a lot of people very concerned, and there's a lot of things people are investigating and concerned about. As you know from listening to my podcast, we've discussed these issues a lot. So today what we're going to do is we're going to have an opportunity to talk to Craig about some of the techniques and concepts that are used to train elite soldiers. And how we can apply those to our lives to, first and foremost, live better. Second, stop being distracted by a bunch of bullshit and get the things that we want to get done because they're dream affirmative. And third, how do you really prepare for the kind of challenges that might be coming our way and inevitably do in life? And how do you keep your head from getting all scattered around? So, Craig, welcome to Living 4D. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Craig, you've done a lot of uh, elite military training in your book, Building the Elite Athlete, the Complete complete Guide to Building Resilient Operators is an excellent resource for informing health and exercise professionals how to use the principles for building elite operators to create resilient human beings. 
I'd love it if you can give us an overview of the kind of training you've done and what some of the most common challenges for soldiers are in this sort of elite training. Yeah, so in the Navy, I was a SWIC, a Special Warfare Combatant Crewman, which is it's a special operations unit that, that focuses on small boat operations. So if you see a commercial for the Navy uh, where there's guys on pointy little gunboats, um, those are SWICs. And I took a very long path through that training pipeline because I grew up in a small town in South Dakota and didn't know how to swim when I joined the Navy. And from boot camp or in boot camp, I volunteered for the selection pipeline, raised my hand and, and took the screen test and eventually passed it by about seven seconds on my last try by failing it a few times before that and being sent to stroke development where I'd learned to swim just well enough to, to squeak through. Um, and so I spent my time in that selection pipeline learning to swim while taking all of these tests. Um, and basically every day was a, an ongoing suffer fest. I, I made it most of the way through the pipeline. I was about two weeks from graduating when I first failed, double failed a time swim. By I just barely failed it by a minute and two seconds. On a it was a forty-five minute swim, and I got sent back. I they didn't they didn't kick me out because they saw that I wasn't going to swim or I wasn't going to quit. Uh, so they sent me from the SWIC program to a buds program, which was SEAL training. Um, and this is called the Brown Shirts Rollback Program. And it's normally a program for BUD students who are past Hell Week. They've gotten through the worst of the torture stuff to prove that they're not going to quit. And then they have some kind of technical shortfall or an injury, and they go into this sort of performance development program. And with me and my swim buddy, the SWIC community is very new at the time. It's still only 20 years old or so. They were trying an experiment, and they just crossed us over into this program. Um, and it was there where for the first time I had real performance coaching instead of someone just telling me to try harder or swim faster or make my heart stronger or something like that. I had a coach. I had someone who stood at the end of the lap lane and watched me swim and gave me specific actionable things to do better. Like roll my torso like this, bend my arm like this, breathe like this, do these things better. And I had an immediate feedback loop because he would stand there at that lap lane and as soon as I came in and hit the wall, he would tap me on the top of the head, tell me what I did wrong, tell me how to do it better, and send me back out. And I improved faster there. I, I improved more in two months there than I did in a year and a half. Um, so I finally graduated. I, I went from that BUDS program back to my SWIC pipeline, went through that and passed the swimming stuff fairly easily after having real coaching and learning to swim. And after about two and a half years, I graduated and went into the special operations community. And from there, a lot of my work became coaching or training other people and training other special operations units in other parts of the world. I trained a lot of Americans that we worked with, and we'd go into other countries and train up a new special operations force of up to 200 guys with five to six of us as the instructors. Um, so I, I applied a lot of what I had learned in the selection pipeline where it's not just about tr blindly trying harder. It's about having a specific practice method or being able to try better and treating physical performance as a skill that you learn and not just something that you throw motivational slogans at. Um, so the specific job I did involved a lot of uh, maritime stuff or boat stuff, um, things like visit board search and seizure operations. We'd sneak up on someone at night in the middle of the ocean and jump on their boat and see what they were up to or take their stuff or whatever. Um, we did a lot of work tracking down Generally, at the time, it was Al-Qaeda-affiliated people who were trying to move through the water around, say, the Horn of Africa region or the Philippine Islands, 
places like that and uh, helping people um, involved in doing stuff around like oil rigs or oil platforms as well. Um, after that, I got out and did some private security work, where, as you said, I was basically a glorified bodyguard in Iraq. I was on the high threat protection detail for the U.S. ambassador to Iraq in Baghdad. Um, so if you see the stuff like the Secret Service does driving around in a motorcade with the president, where there's five vehicles or so um, driving a specific, specific formation through an area, and then the, the president or the principal gets out and walks into a building and does something, there's a little bubble of guys around him. And I was one of those guys. I was a driver for the most part. I drove the ambassadors, the principal vehicle. Um, and in the earlier days, I was on the movement team that would walk the diamond and get people in and out of places. Um, so I did a lot of training under that. And there's a lot of specific shoot, move, communicate skills there, trauma medicine, things like that. But throughout that, I, I always had a role in the, the physical training side. And further along down that road, I do some work academically with the clandestine intelligence community, and uh, we've published a few papers that are that are on the public side around uh, detecting deception, things like that, like non-confrontational ways of telling if someone is lying. Um, and we've got a couple papers out on that. And uh, yeah, that's that's it. So we trans we transferred that work into building the elite eventually, starting in 2010. So the things that I had started doing in in the military. Uh, once I became a civilian and opened my first gym, I met my business partner, John Pope, 2010 or so. And we started working together and we've been training other people for the special operations pipeline since then. And a key thing there is these courses, say you're going to BUDS to be a SEAL, you're going to SWIC selection, special forces selection, whatever, the attrition rates are anywhere from 60 to 90 percent, depending on which course, what time of year. Um so 60 to 90 percent of the people who start don't make it. They fail um, or they quit generally. And our clients for the past so now 11 years have had about a 90 percent success rate. So that's pretty good. Almost everyone we work with makes it through. And that's because we look at the whole person and we look at the factors that support performance instead of just relying on motivational slogans and just try harder or just don't quit. We give them the skills to do those things when it matters. Yeah, that's very good. Why did you get out of the military? Um, I didn't want to do just one thing with my life. And, and even at that point, I did three back-to-back -back deployments with another mini deployment in the middle, instead of going through the full workup training cycle, which was normally an 18 month cycle at the time. I'd get back for one deployment, raise my hand, volunteer for the next one going out the door. And I did, it was basically four back-to-back -back in a row. And by the time I was done with that, it was getting repetitive. Uh, I was starting to see the same places already and do the same types of missions. And, uh, I wanted to do something else. Yeah, that's a good one. Did you guys, uh, did you per personally do any survival escape and evasion training? Yeah, yeah. That's one of the first parts of the, the SWIC pipeline for whatever reason. Um, at the time, they sent us very early to that school. And, and anyone in the special ops community is going to go through SEER school. And yeah, I went through, I did the one in Maine uh, in the winter. So it was also... A cold weather survival course because there was about five feet of fresh snow on the ground from a recent blizzard and it was i think below zero it was very cold yeah i'm i'm sure that was an interesting experience eh yeah <laughs> yep. yeah it was. yeah but uh the other thing you you brought up you know you were talking about swimming and and i didn't learn to swim till i joined the army and uh i really wanted to be a triathlete so i spent my first year in the army, um, fortunately 
I befriended one of the lifeguards who became my swim instructor. So uh, I was able to get from, you know, kind of like you, you talked about not swimming really well to, I think I got to the point where I could swim a mile in 25 minutes, which for, for a guy that started swimming at 22 was, wasn't too bad. Um, but I would always come out of the water in like, you know, a hundredth or 120th or 130th place and have to work my ass off, uh, to get up into the top 10. I managed to finish uh, top 10 overall in I think seven triathlons, which made me happy. But, uh, the point I was going to make is I, I really think swimming is really important as a skill for children and, and that parents should really always consider getting their kids swim training. I had, uh, we, we hired a swim instructor to come train my son and, and my daughter's learning now too. She's two and a half, but Mana's five, but my father drowned when I was eight. So I always had this deep fear that something might happen to me in the water. So my way of dealing with that was to become a triathlete. And eventually I swam the Chesapeake Bay, which was 4.9 miles, I think. And that cured me of my need for long swimming. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I was going to say swimming is like more specifically a useful skill for children would be drown proofing, which sounds terrifying. Um, but there are books on it. And, and the, the basic idea is just water survival or being able to be comfortable and competent in the water. And so if you get tossed into deep water, regardless of what your 100 meter time is or something like that, like say you get rocked by a couple of waves, you get uncomfortable, you get punched under the water, you're able to self-regulate, stay emotionally calm and, and survive. Um, and there are pretty basic things that you can learn to do that. And that's one of the big things that they, they do in the military. Like they're, they're not training triathletes, really. Like it's, it's really rare anyone's going to do a two-mile swimmer insertion into anything, but there's a good chance you're going to end up in the water in really rough rough seas with all kinds of stuff on that's going to drag you down and bad things will happen or helos go under sometimes. You have a couple of seconds to save your life. Um, Drownproofing, just being comfortable in the water, being able to float, tread water, go underwater if you have to, be okay taking a couple of hits into the water um, is a really valuable skill. And there's actually... There's a book on it in the Coronado Library. Coronado, California is where, where buds and swim training happens. And if you go to the library, you'll see the people who have checked out this book is a list of people who are now SWICs or SEALs or whatever from forever ago. The book is from like the 1950s. Wow. And there was a school, a university in like Georgia that would require drownproofing and an underwater swim as it was a requirement to graduate because they saw it as a measure of character. Because physiologically, anyone can swim 25 meters underwater. It doesn't take 20 seconds or so. It doesn't take very long. Uh, it's it's just a matter of emotionally regulating and not panicking. So sort of like displaying this level of self-control. So everyone in their college had to just swim underwater for 25 meters. And then I think tread water and bob and float for 10 minutes or so, which is an interesting thing for like a normal civilian college to do. But they have a book on it which has probably been updated scientifically a lot since then in the last you know, 70 years. But um, it's, it's a really important skill, and it's something that very few people really grow up with unless you're a surfer or something like that, or if you've somehow taken up underwater hockey, which is a recent trend that came from the military community. Wow, I never even heard of underwater hockey. There's a, there's a group in San Diego, actually, I think is where a lot of them are based. They're Marine, I think the recon guys mostly. 
that, that doesn't surprise in. me. Yeah. When I was a paratrooper, I was put in charge of an entire stick of recon rangers, and holy shit, are these guys wild and out of control. Mm-hmm. They yeah, made yeah. sure that we were doing push-ups and getting chewed out and tortured constantly because they were absolutely against following orders of any kind. Mm-hmm. In fact, something you as a soldier would appreciate, when we were doing our jump training in jump school, Right, have you you missed you must have parachuted have you yeah i did fort benning the static school there yeah yeah probably so, the same one you did yes exactly because i was in with all sorts of you know that's where all the guys from all the branches of the military come we're on our first jump i'm in charge of all these guys i'm their leader there's 15 of them if i remember right and i can't remember how the, or the they were they were in front of me in the order to jump out the door and they open the door and they go 60 seconds, you know, and they count you down. Well, these Marines got up and just jumped out <laughs> the freaking airplane. They didn't even wait for the go or anything. And they're damn lucky because there was uh, a big main highway down there that uh, where we were coming, approaching the landing. But some of them got caught in trees and all sorts of shit. And boy, I'll tell you, the, all hell broke loose when those guys uh, met the people in charge the sergeants and everybody in charge and i had to get tortured with these guys for hours on end because of this crazy shit and they were doing stuff like that all the time non-stop so i have a lot of memory of recon rangers for sure um <laughs> there was something about uh oh i was gonna say did in your training did you guys ever have to do forced drownings no that's not a real thing um, that's like a, an internet rumor. People do have shallow water blackouts occasionally. Like you're going to be in the water under stress on a breath hold long enough that once in a while people will black out, but there's no such thing as like a forced drowning in any of those selection pipelines. Well, I've got news for you, my friend, cause I've watched it happen. I was, I was in, when I was in the army and I was the trainer of the army boxing team, I used to Uh, get up early in the morning and run with the boxing team and right across the street from the boxing gym was the JFK warfare center. And and that's where our big Olympic swimming pool was. And that's where they did all the training for the elite soldiers there. And it just so happened one day that uh, somebody started talking to me and asking me training questions. And so I got held up getting into the shower, but they had started a training program for the green berets. And I was standing in the shower and I felt this weird feeling of somebody staring at me. And I turned around and there was a a captain in dress uniform who started talking to me and started mentioning all sorts of stuff about me, knew all sorts of things about my life, that I was a motocross racer, stock car racer, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, would you like to try out for Delta Force? And I said, well, thanks for the offer, but you, you also must know that I have a wife and a child and I've also know people in Delta Force and know sometimes they don't come home. So I don't think my wife's going to really support that decision. But meanwhile, I was hearing all this yelling and screaming. And so I thought, what the hell are they doing out there? So I walked out the edge of the, you know, out of the showers where I could see in the pool and they had all these guys in training and they were taking lead, lead blocks of, of uh, lead. Dive bricks. Yeah. Yeah. With rubber around them. And then they would throw them in the water and the guys would have to swim and then they have to bring them back. Then they'd throw. And so they kept reducing their rest time 
and I watched several of them drown and they were, I, I could hear them talking and they said, you, you have, you have got to keep going until you lose consciousness or you cannot graduate the program. So I watched this go on for about 20 minutes and every single one of them in there just kept going until they went out underwater. Then they had guys to pull them out and revive them right there. So I've actually seen that training myself. Hmm. I'll, uh, I'll have to ask some SF buddies about that. I think the school you would have been seeing was uh, CDQC, the combat dive qualification course or dive school. Um, but I, I've never heard of deliberately drowning anyone. They will push people to their limits. Um, they're good at bringing people back, but um, that's usually not the specific outcome they're after. Well, I saw, I saw at least 10 guys go completely out underwater and they had to be brought up and revived on deck and were, you know, doing the classic water shooting out of their mouth when they were turning them back on. And, and uh, all the guys running it were Green Berets, so I figured it must be some kind of a Green Beret selection program. But I have actually sat there and watched them do it. They didn't uh, – I don't think anybody saw me because they were very focused on what was going on in the pool. But they had barricaded the place off so nobody could get in. And it was just by accident that I happened to be in the um, changing room. And I don't think anybody thought to check in the changing room. So I kind of got lucky to see that. Uh, but that's why I was asking because that would take quite a lot of mental discipline to push yourself to that extreme. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing about the special ops community or these guys is that they're willing to find that limit. And what they what they generally find is that the limit is a lot further away than they think, than any of their like physiological or emotional signals tell them it is. Like that's how our bodies are designed to give us warnings before we break, so that we don't break. Um, but they, they learn to normalize and, and basically ignore or accept those warning signals as they go and learn exactly where the limit is. Um, like playing, we mentioned underwater hockey. I had a buddy who is a, a Marine scout sniper and on his way out of the, of the Marines, he spent a couple months, basically he was off the deployment cycle and he just hung out with the recon guys at the pool. And I think his actual job was to be a lifeguard. But he played a lot of underwater hockey and did a lot of the underwater stuff with the, the recon guys or the maritime guys. And two, three years later, we would play underwater hockey at a college where basically the idea is you throw down a dive brick or a rubberized weight or whatever, some heavy thing, and you do it in a, a 10 or 15 foot deep pool and you divide into teams and your objective is just to touch the weight to the wall of the other guy's side, like playing football or something like that. Um and my friend Marshall, because he'd spent so much time in the water, he was terrifying to play with because he knew exactly how long he had before he lost consciousness. And he was completely comfortable up to that line within three or four seconds. So he knew like when his fingertips got tingly, he had this much time. He knew if uh, his vision started to, to scintillate or sparkle like that uh, visual distortion, he had this much time if, if his vision tunneled to black. He had X much time still, and the last thing to go would be his hearing. So he would be, we'd wear fins, and he'd be trucking along, just kicking away, holding the weight in front of him, heading to the wall, and he'd be comfortable being blind, like hypoxic enough that he'd lose his eyesight, because he would just listen for the sound of the weight tapping against the wall, and then he'd be good, and he'd rock it to the surface and get his breath. But there would be times when the rest of us would just start, would stop messing with him and stop trying to strip the weight away and just swim above him, waiting to see if he'd black out. But he never did because he knew exactly where the line was and he was comfortable going right up to that point. And that's that's a fairly common sort of like 
psych profile that you see in the, the special ops community. Like I, I have another buddy who's a, he's also, uh, he was a force recon Marine who will like once a year or so, he's a short little fat guy, um, has no business being a good runner, but he runs like a 450 mile in his 40s. And once a year or so, he'll go on a treadmill and he's planned this out so that the treadmill is like in a gym that has an AED on site and is really close to a hospital or whatever. And he'll run the fastest mile that he can so that it's calculated to have him black out at the finish because he wants to know what his actual physiological capacity is. Not like, where's the limit where I feel bad and stop? Like, where do I voluntarily stop? But like, what's the line where I actually break? And for him, it's around a 450 mile or so. For a little fat guy in his 40s. And he does that like once a year. And he'll send me the screenshot of his watch, like the picture he takes when he's done. And he'll have little abrasions. He's wearing that little cord that stops the treadmill as soon as he drops. And he uses the treadmill with handrails. And he kind of catches himself. But that's that's one of the things that these guys kind of share, like a comfort or an acceptance of physiological extremes. Like they they don't really care about pain or they, they can tell the difference between hurt and harm. Like they know what's just uncomfortable and what's actual damage. And they'll push through any level of discomfort and they're still smart enough to stop before damage happens. Not to say that chronic hypoxia is great for your brain, but um, you know they'll, they'll push right to that line and, and they're able to do that. That's just part of their sort of capacity. And that's, that's a big part of what people are learning in these training pipelines is what's the difference between hurt and harm or how far can you really push your body. And when you first jump in, that's one of the things I learned as a student when I couldn't swim or the shit was I could suffer a lot more than I thought before the lights really went out. Um, and, and you just learn to accept that and it becomes normal. And then when you go into the real world with, with normal civilian people, it takes a while to adjust because everyone's calibrated at a much different level and their alarm signals go off at like the halfway point and you have to get used to that. Yeah. I've, uh, fortunately or unfortunately been through a lot of pretty intense fight training and, you know, have experienced being choked until I'm on the edge of blacking out and finding out, you know, okay, I got X number of seconds to figure out how to get out of this before the lights go out. And, and, uh, one of the things that I do, you know, I'm 60 now, so I don't have this youthful urge to torture and test myself like I did when I was young, but I'll go in my cold plunge and, uh, I'll, I'll, I start by staying underwater as long as I can. And what I've found from my own research on myself is that initially there's this tendency for the body to react to the mind. And so if you're if you start thinking, okay, this is going to be rough or whatever, I find my whole body starts to tighten up. So I found one of the best things I can do is to really relax my mind and just sort of take it as a meditation and get really a thought of how cold it is or how long can I go out of my head. So I imagine for, for a lot of you guys, there must be a fair bit of training or a, a self-learned skill about keeping yourself relaxed. If you don't stay relaxed, you burn up a ton of energy. Yeah. Uh, my brother coined the phrase, <laughs> my brother was a, a combat engineer in the army. So he went to school where they would 
crawl around on the ground and try to find landmines where the pointy wooden stick. Um, oh, how exciting. <laughs> yeah. And he coined this phrase that I love that panic is the first stage of death, which is fairly accurate. Like when you hear a story of someone who drowns in like two feet of water or something really inexplicable happens and you hear the story and they're like, well, everything was fine. And then they panicked. Like that's when you know it's going to go badly. And that's kind of the first fundamental skill that you're learning in the special ops pipeline, regardless of which specific trade you're in, like whether you're a Green Beret or a SEAL or whatever, is to just self-regulate and stay calm and rational and think through things when everything else is blowing up or falling apart. Falling apart. And it, cold water specifically is, is used to assess for that and to develop it because it's sort of a primitive fear that we have like snakes spiders men with cauliflower ears you know like things that that like raise the hair on the back of your neck where you're like this is a lethal threat and and it, it's very panic inducing for people either hypothermia in the water or deep water like like the fear of drowning is hard to escape that's why these courses use it they don't really care how good you are at swimming like as a skill you're not going to go to the olympics um, they care about how good you are at staying calm in an environment that naturally induces panic. And then they select for people who have the fundamental capacity for that, and then they train them further once they're qualified through the selection pipeline. Yeah. Speaking of panic, I'll share uh, a couple of experiences I had that really uh, triggered panic that I had to work very carefully to hold in check. Um, I lived in the Florida Keys. That's I joined the Army in Miami, and I used to uh, work on fishing boats. And every now and then, a boat will run across an unmarked net, a uh, fishing net, and it'll wind up the whole net in the propeller. Are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah. Yep. And so what happens is the net builds up into this huge ball, and it starts to burn because the torque of the engine is, you know, most of these uh, fishing boats are you you know got v8 jimmy diesels they got a lot of power and so one time our net we ran over an unmarked net unfortunately very close to the cuban water line and it dead stopped the diesel engine and uh i i was the only one that would go under the water and and try to cut the net out but the net was full of fish so there was fish guts everywhere so you know what that means yeah. visitors yeah. so i'm down there free diving because we didn't have any scuba tanks so i'd have to go down and cut 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 with this huge butcher knife and there's fish guts all around me and all of a sudden i felt this thing bump right up against me and i turn around it was about a seven and a half foot hammerhead shark and my heart rate shot up to about 220 and i'm like holy shit and so I knew that if I panicked, he probably would come after me. And I slowly just swam to the edge and, and I had a rope attached to my waist and I tugged it and they jerked me up out of the water. They, there was so much fish guts, they couldn't even see the damn thing in the water. But I, but I used to make money doing what's called wheel diving for people that had ran over nets because nobody wanted to go down there because of all the fish and, and the sharks. And I've had probably four or five encounters with very large sharks bumping right up against me and i i i just intuitively knew if i show too much panic that's probably going to be the end of me right about now yeah yeah there's i can't remember the girl's name there's there are several people that make a thing of swimming with fairly large sharks where basically they're just staying calm and they're not somehow marking themselves as prey and they they can get away with it but but yeah they the sharks will respond to 
panic. I, I don't know the physiology very well, but I know they can sense changes in like cardiac rhythm um, or the electrical signals put out by your heart in a, in a stress response. And, and that actually lights them up a bit. I mean, not to mention the smell of blood, which just puts you in danger, but oh, yes. that's, yeah, that, that actual, that scenario is in the SWIC pipeline because SWIC guys are boat guys. Um, so they do it in the kelp beds off Point Loma in San Diego. And in, in the middle of the night, they drive you out there and they're like, oh, something. And you have to jump out and do like untangle the imaginary propeller sometimes because it's a jet boat. But they make you dive under the hole a bunch of times or swim around in the kelp beds, which are known as being sort of a feeding ground for, for sharks. And we never had any real encounters. Like we had small five, six foot reef sharks and stuff, but we never had anything big. But it's another one where they're just testing to see if you freak out in that setting, you know, in the middle of the night, middle of the ocean in a kelp bed, diving around with a little, hopefully you have a flashlight. Sometimes you don't. And they'll either tangle a prop or they'll just give you something to do under the water and you have to, you have to manage it. But yeah, that's another thing. It's a, with maritime stuff, that's a pretty common scenario that you have to be able to deal with. And and it is very uncomfortable for a lot of people. Yeah. It took me a while after the first one, uh, it was a bit of an emergency because if our boat made it into the Cuban territory, they would confiscate our boat and possibly put us in prison for a while. So we were trying to wait as long as we could to call the Coast Guard. And we were hoping to get that out of there. Uh, I won't bore you with the rest of the story, but we managed to get home. We had to get towed home and we kept calling for help, but nobody was out there. And eventually a guy got us, but we were literally so close to the Cuban waterline there. Uh, patrol boats were literally 40 feet from us with guns loaded and ready to confiscate us. So it was a bit stressful, but so I was the only guy that could determine whether or not we could actually get this damn boat of ours to turn on again and run. But the uh, net was so packed from the pressure, it melted the net. And because the lead line was in it, I couldn't cut more than an inch or two and I hit lead. So it was a long job and I could not, and I, and I found out that the propeller was bent. So we, even if I got it out, we couldn't do anything because it had actually bent the whole propeller. I wanted to share that, uh, I actually saw a documentary several years ago where they made robots like human robots and they put them in the water with the sharks, big sharks, like great whites and stuff out in the ocean. And they would let the robots swim and the sharks wouldn't have anything to do with them. But then they had programmed into one of the robots or into one of these robots, a swim stroke that symbolized that the person was fatigued. So they modeled it after a fatigued swimmer. Huh. And within seconds of switching the programming, so the robot started having a choppy stroke, the shark started to attack it, but they didn't attack the one that they left swimming normally. Interesting. Yeah, huh. it was quite wild to see, but I intuitively sense that. And since we're on that topic, I got to share another experience I had in this regard. I, there's a place in La Jolla. Have you ever been to La Jolla, California and yeah. San Diego? You know, yeah. the, the, the bay in La Jolla there? Yeah, yeah. We used to uh, free dive there a lot. Right. So I used to swim from the La Jolla side over to the opposite side where the lifeguard tower is in there, which I think is about 1.2 miles. One day I got halfway out and I was just kind of in a meditation and all of a sudden my hand hit something and I looked down and there was countless numbers of huge barracudas in there and it was mating season and they were all like humping each other, having sex with each other. Hmm. And, and they've, you know, they've got their 
tails are five feet long with those stingers. And if one of those stingers gets you, it's really bad news. And there was, as far as I could see, there, I was literally in a sea of them. And I had to dog paddle for about a half an hour because I was afraid if I took a full stroke, I might hit one. Were you wearing a watch? No. Okay. I know that can be a thing with, with Barracuda specifically. The glint off a watch is basically a fishing lure. It's sparkly. And, well, and I'm glad it. as hell I wasn't. I mean, these things were big. Some of them had wingspans of like six feet. They were the biggest things I'd ever seen. And so, oh, so you're saying like manta rays or stingrays of some sort. Like yeah. The big, yeah. The big. Yeah. Okay. That's not, that's, not barracudas. Sorry. I got the wrong name. Yeah. That's stingrays. Big one, pointy fish. Yeah. Yeah. Stingray. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, for, I just switched the names in my head. I know what a barracuda is. We used to catch them on the fishing boat. They're fierce little creatures. Those things. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The, the stingrays. Yeah. They're at least they're going to leave you alone generally. Like they're, Unless you step on them or something. Well, that see, I was afraid I might hit one or or kick one accidentally and get stung. So my heart rate shot right up because I there was nowhere I could go. All of a sudden, I was just surrounded by them, and I thought, my God, how many of them is there? It literally took me a half an hour to get out of them, Mm -hmm. and then I thought, oh my God, finally! And I started swimming, and shit, it wasn't a minute later, I was in another pack of them. Yeah, they they swim in. I don't know what you call it, schools. Um, they were, I yeah. think it is a mating thing. I saw it once. I was surfing in Costa Rica, and their big school of them or whatever came in, and they were they'll actually surf and play in the waves, and they'll jump up out of the water and flap their little wings and smack back down. And they're little. I think they were called cow nose rays. They're maybe two feet wide, but they were yeah. It was really cool to see. And they do they they form really dense little groups when they're. I, I guess that must be a mating season thing or something. Oh but it was it was clear water. We could see them if you were on a wave. You could look down. And just see them everywhere below you. And it was a little sketchy to come off, like to fall, because you don't know if you're going to smack down on top of one. But they didn't seem to be very bitey or stingy. Like, it didn't seem like anyone ever got popped by one. I know the normal sand-based stingrays get people in the feet all the time. But. Yeah, well, once I once I was in them for a few minutes and saw that they were quite preoccupied with each other, then I calmed down a bit. But I had never seen these things that big, that close. I mean... The only time I ever saw, we pulled one up on the fishing boat one time that weighed about 450 pounds and they were all that big. Oh, and it was, in a manta ray. Yeah. It was size of a car. Yeah. These were scary. I mean, they were like six feet across at the wings and I'm like, wow, the tail on the, the stuff, the base of their tails was like two and a half inches around, like the size of a horse's tail. And the stingers on these things were like six inches long. You could see them sticking out and I'm like, shit almighty. If I get stung by one of those or I hit two of them and scare them i'm dead out here yeah they're really cool I've, I've only seen a manta ray once it was in uh mexico there was a bunch of us down there surfing and we're on the boards and we saw what we at first thought was a shark fin like a big shark fin like flip up out of the water and arc around us and <laughs> and then we realized that it was a manta ray that just flipped one wing up and, oh. and was cruising around next to us and yeah it was maybe six seven feet wide it was really cool it was the only yeah. time i've ever seen one Hi, everybody. I'm excited to announce that I will be one of the featured speakers at the Peak Performance Summit to be held in San Diego, California this May. If you want to expand your idea of what is possible, then this is the summit for you. As a Living 4D podcast listener, I know you'll have a deep interest in self-discovery and personal growth. So I invite you to take a trip to beautiful San Diego and join us there for three days of live in-person workshops on optimal health and personal peak performance. 
The summit features an all-star cast of presenters, including some of my podcast guests, such as Ben Greenfield and Roger Jonka, as well as surfer Bethany Hamilton, music creator Rick Beto, and Jason Prawl from the Human Longevity Project. The P3 Summit will be one of my only live speaking appearances this year, and in my session, I'll be sharing concepts from my forthcoming new book. I'll show you strategies and practices you can use to create more balance and harmony in your life, as well as teachings to align your thoughts and actions with your life legacy. I'll be giving both a presentation and a workshop, so there's a double opportunity to learn with me. Registration is open now, and early bird discount prices are available until February the 14th, so don't wait to save your place. Head to pacificcollege.edu forward slash P3 for full details and information on attendance packages. That's pacificcollege.edu forward slash lowercase p number three. I hope to see you there. When I was in basic training in the Army, we had four suicide attempts by soldiers that couldn't handle the stress of basic training. We had a huge number of people getting sick and dropping out or having to be recycled because they missed too much training from being in hospitals and what have you. So I'm curious, what are the most common mistakes people entering into military training make that leaves them unprepared for the rigors of basic military training? And what suggestions do you have for those people considering military training? military training. Um, there are many BUDS camps being run for the public. Now, I, I recently did a podcast with Jamie Wheel, and he's working with Navy SEALs running them. And I've heard of other ones out there. And I've met several of my students that have attempted to go through them and, and have gone through them. But I'm wondering, what could you share with people in the public uh, that they should know before they show up thinking it's just another CrossFit event in the dirt or the water? I mean, first, the military doesn't really change you into something you're not. So, so when you, especially at the boot camp scenes, like, you know, your first day of boot camp, you look around and it's like the Star Wars bar scene of bizarre people. And you're like, what, what state created you? Like, just the weirdest island of misfit toys kind of people you know, you'll ever encounter. The military isn't going to take someone who has mental or emotional health issues going in and fix them in boot camp. And, and it's very common. A lot of the people who go into the military are coming from difficult backgrounds probably, or may have mental or emotional health issues. They're not going to fix them there. They're going to put them in an environment that exacerbates those issues. So either boot camp shakes it out or other training phases, AIT or whatever, it will bring those issues to the surface. And they're probably doing it without providing any meaningful coping resources. So it's, it's worth a bit of self-assessment if you're going into the military to try and understand how well you do under chronic stress and how dependent you are on the external supports that you have in your current environment. Like if you're really attached or even normally attached to the stuff that makes you comfortable that's around you, your home, your bed, your routine, your food, your clothing, all of that stuff, it's all going to be taken away in what's basically a full-blown indoctrination process where they try to strip away for a period your individuality in order to make you conform to this central core thing of being a soldier or whatever. Um, and the people that have the or that aren't able to manage their stress responses in those settings that get really stressed out by it are, are often going to struggle. And it's a setting that's the stress in itself compromises your immunity 
And then you're in these little open bay barracks surrounded by a bunch of stressed out, sick people from all over the country at the same time. And basically everyone's going to get the flu or something while they're there. They're not going to sleep well because you're probably sleeping under red fluorescent lights that make it impossible to really sleep. And they're waking you up at odd hours and whatever. So, so you're going to go through something that is deliberately designed to just suck. It's, it's oftentimes just pointless and boring, but it's at least going to suck. Um, so going in on the like the mental and emotional side, people need the ability to self-regulate and emotionally manage themselves, and they need an internalized locus of control, meaning that they're able to make decisions or regulate themselves or decide what to do based on what's inside of them and their mind without an external support, like without someone else telling them that they're okay and that they're making a good decision because they're going to take all of the external support away. Everything on the outside is going to be stressful and terrible and telling you that you suck. So you need the ability to tell yourself internally that I am okay. I'm a good person. I'm doing the right thing right now. Um, and if you allow the external environment to degrade your sense of self as a person, then it's going to be a very stressful place. So there are a lot of people who are prone to catastrophizing, like blowing up the significance of an of an issue especially in time like a small thing that's going to last for five minutes becomes the only thing that matters they extrapolate uh and they ruminate like they just think on painful things bad experiences on stressful things without actively solving they just sit with stress and make it worse and worse by ruminating or, or building up anxiety cycles so you'll see a lot of uh learned helplessness is a risk factor in that where they take stressors and they run them through a paradigm mentally where they make them personal, permanent, and pervasive. So you just got yelled at for something that was a completely contrived situation by someone whose job is to yell at you, but you're going to say that it's because of who you are as a person that these personal deficits are permanent, that you'll always have, have them, and that it means that everything about you sucks. That's, that's kind of the learned helplessness perspective. And, and if people who have that mental approach to the world tend to do very poorly in these environments because it, it it exacerbates the stress that they already have and makes it puts it into a reinforcing cycle. Um, physically, as you said, it's it's not a CrossFit event. Um, even regular military, if you're going into even a non-combat role, you do need basic physical preparation. You don't need to be an athlete. You don't need to be a triathlete. But you need to be able to walk and run and do push-ups and maybe a pull-up or two, the basic crawl, push, pull, squat, run kind of stuff. And you need some aerobic fitness. And um, I think you've mentioned this before, the nutrition side is often a huge deficit for people. Like even in boot camp where people are only running a couple miles a day, you see a ton of stress fractures because you're getting these 18-year-olds whose bones are made of Mountain Dew, basically. They've never really eaten real food. And they don't have the bone density to withstand even fairly low levels of, relatively speaking, low levels of stress. Their, their bones start to break because they went jogging. Um, so, yeah, so you have to look at kind of fundamental behaviors. And if it's a big deviation from your life to be under stress, to be under physical stress, emotional stress, you, you'll want to prepare for that in advance and come in with some of that, some of that readiness. Um, on the special ops side, it's much more involved. And in that case, your training is your job and you have to take it as seriously as any other professional. Um, part of the selection process, especially now with the Internet and unlimited bad information out there, is weeding out people for their ability to filter information and engage in long term planning and delayed gratification. 
So we see this a lot. I saw it in my day when I was uh, for a while, a six month period, I screened all the new guys coming into the program who are going to be SWICs or SEALs or whatever. And a lot of people were terribly underprepared. They showed up hoping, thinking it was a gamble, like you're going to show up and do your best and try it out. And that's part of the reason that the attrition rates are so high because people aren't professionally preparing. It's like if you wanted to be a lawyer and you showed up and took the LSAT after graduating high school without any extra study, like you, you have to prepare for this test that you're taking. Um, and now what we see a lot is people doing random workouts off Instagram or off some internet person that they've found. They're not connecting any of them in a long-term plan. Like we talked about how the academies have basically what could be a four-year Olympic development program and you know universities people who are going into these courses as officers they have four years after high school to prepare and a lot of them aren't taking any kind of a long-term perspective because they're just doing random one-off crossfit workouts every day or whatever beating themselves up they're basically taking the same test every day for four years and then they're going and taking the test for real and realizing that they've never trained for the test they've never they've never practiced they've only tried to perform and testing is not the same thing as training um like uh, from our side, you, the people who are coaching these kind of people, if someone's going into the military, specifically if they're going in the special ops community, you don't want to be the guy who's basically a track coach standing on the side of the track yelling at your athlete to run faster. Like there's a lot of people out there that are good at yelling the outcomes, like the things that people should be able to do, like just don't quit, just try harder, you know, be tough, whatever. But all of those things are meaningless if you can't identify the components of that skill and develop them in a sequential way that makes sense so that people can have that skill or manifest that skill when they need it. Like you can tell someone, just don't quit all you want, but in the middle of the worst day of their life, when they're overwhelmed with pain, they don't have that skill unless they've practiced it in advance. And that's where a lot of people are falling short. Like they're identifying some of the outcomes. Like I should be able to not quit. I should be able to run fast, but they can't identify the process that produces those outcomes or they're not thinking about it or fixating on that. They're just taking the tests. Yeah. Uh, and I know I, I'll just throw a shout out for your book. You have quite a lot of information on the strategies for development in there that I noticed uh, with things like mental, emotional self-management and things like that. So for those of you that want to test your mettle and go join one of these buds camps or similar like that, uh, Craig's book, Building the Elite, is a probably a very good resource for you. Now, I agree with everything you've said. I uh unfortunately unfortunately was raised by a man that was absolutely brutal and had no concept of a child and worked us day and night i mean dawn to dusk hard hard work zero tolerance for excuses you hold your fork wrong you could get punched in the <laughs> face you could get hit with tools broken bones trips to the hospital no problem dare talk back and you will not like the outcome. So by the time I got to basic training, I just was like, oh, Jesus, this is just a joke. These guys mm -hmm. are pussies. And so are the damn drill sergeants. And uh, the one thing that, that I found interesting, which I wanted to share with you and the listeners, is that I was amazed coming into basic training how many gangbangers were in there like there was just tons of guys that came out of gangs and joined the military and they all you know had their walk and their lisp and their t their tv get up but watching these guys very carefully i found there was no correlation between their show 
and their actual real metal, you know, this, what they could handle. And, and the result was, is that as, as many of them dropped out or showed signs of weakness, but every now and then you'd get a real bona fide tough guy in there, but you, you couldn't tell from the outside. So like you were referring to, it's really an inside job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, you'll see that. So sidetrack briefly, you'll see that with uh, tattoos and external signals of toughness a lot. Like a lot of the people who need those external signals to tell the world something about themselves are doing that to compensate for an insecurity or a weakness. And it's the guys that are just quietly okay with who they are that don't need to signal anything to the world that are usually more capable and that are still going to be there when all the shit's done. Yes. One of, one of my best friends and sparring partners when I was a competitive fighter was a guy named Lloyd Anderson, who uh, was the Canadian lightweight boxing champion. And he won his first eight fights as a amateur kickboxer. And then he turned pro and on his, I think 12th fight, he won the world title in Japan. And, uh, this guy was the most polite guy. He was only five foot seven when he was out of training, probably weighed 140 pounds. But let me tell you something. I used to spar from lightweight all the way to light heavyweight. And this guy could hit harder than any human being I've ever been in a ring with. Even with 16 ounce gloves, he would leave welts on my head that looked like somebody hit me with a pool cue (laughs) and, and was not a guy to mess with. But the point I'm making is he did not look like a tough guy. He was quiet. He was polite, very cool guy but the most dangerous freaking guy in the world to pick a fight with. And I'm just reinforcing what you're saying. The real fighters are the guys that are quiet and composed and not imposing, but you push the wrong button and the dragon comes out. Yeah. Yeah. You'll see that a lot in that, that world. But the, I worked with a lot of MMA guys a long time ago, like 2010 or so. And it was sort of the same. They, they weren't, really showy arrogant you know like they might put a show on camera when they have to do their little performance and you know like talk about themselves but they were professionals they they were quiet they did their jobs they knew who they were and they didn't have to prove it to anybody like they weren't going to brag about themselves in a bar or whatever and if you if you hang out with the special ops community that's a lot of the guys there as well especially it seems when you get into the the tier one communities like the delta guys people like that um they're usually they're they're not that noticeable like you they, they're not putting on a big show they're not displaying a lot because they don't have to they don't care like like there's that phrase a rich person doesn't have to tell you that they're rich and that's a lot of these guys like some of them will be physically juggernauts especially the tier one guys on assault teams like they'll get massive and and you'll notice when they walk into a room because they look like action figures but a lot of them, a lot of the, the tier one operators are pretty normal looking guys who just keep to themselves and don't want to be bothered. Yeah. Do you know who Sean O'Malley is? Doesn't ring a bell, no. Uh, he's he's one of the world's best uh, cage fighters, kickboxers. He's a, he's a friend of mine and his trainer, Tim Welsh, is a very cool guy. And they've come and spent time with me and been on my podcast. If you want to hear a great podcast, you should listen to that one. But Sean's very cool, laid back, you know, funny, health. It's just a real healthy character, you know, and another guy that you wouldn't expect was (laughs) a dangerous bomb ready to go off if you (laughs) hit the fuse. But uh, 
one of the you now you talked about some really important points but what i'd like to draw out of you is there was no indication of what a person could do if they want to go train you said you got to develop your mental toughness more reliance on yourself but how does a person go about doing that on their own well it depends on where they're starting you know like what what their profile is there's no single recipe like no like pdf template you can give someone that that works for everyone so it's going to depend on their personal profile where they are physically where they are mentally emotionally um and what program they're going into but one of the sort of big picture templates you could put over it is something called stress inoculation that's it's useful on the physical side and and the uh, mental emotional side as well stress inoculation is it's one of the most common training methods used in the military whether they use the terminology or not. And it's used to uh, not so much improve performance, but reduce performance decrements under stress. And the idea is that you use stress inoculation to learn how to recognize and manage your stress responses while executing a particular skill. Um, so say you're, you're carrying a ruck, actually, like rucking is a common one. I'm sure you did plenty of that in the Army, walking around with a backpack. Um, lots of miles for the, for the first five minutes, it's pretty easy to, you know, keep a neutral spine to breathe well, to manage your self-talk and things like that. So you've got a physiological thing happening, your, your posture, and you've got a mental thing happening. Like your self-talk's probably pretty good. You're probably pretty focused on the long term. Like you're thinking about tomorrow a little bit, like you're, you're okay. Um, and then as you go, as fatigue sets in, you start to turn into a human question mark a little bit. Your spine might start to buckle. Your breathing patterns patterns might start to change. You might start to see mental changes as well. Like you might fixate on pain. Like you start to notice a little nagging thing in your knee or your back hurts. Your traps are locking up. Your shoulders are killing you. Your self-talk might turn toxic so that you start telling yourself how much this sucks, how underprepared you are. You might hit that wall where you start making excuses and building yourself sort of a a nest that you can use to quit later so you can rationalize an excuse to stop earlier or, or, you know, like give up. Um, and, and the basic idea with, with stress inoculation is to take a skill that you have mastered that you can execute well. So in this case, walking around with a backpack and then perform that skill under conditions of increasing stress while recognizing and managing your stress responses. So it's going to depend on who you are and how you break. But if you do this right, you're putting in a position where you do find your edge or you do find your limit. And then you're practicing by making and learning from mistakes at the edge of your ability, looking at both physical and mental deviations from quality. So it might be that your self-talk goes to shit when you get tired. Uh, you might start telling yourself how much this sucks. You might start fixating on pain. You might tell yourself all kinds of little stories. And in that case, the specific skill that you're going to practice is going to be managing your self-talk where you redirect it. You either focus on something positive or you might even just mitigate it by just putting something repetitive and neutral in your head. And, and basically you're practicing the skill of attentional regulation or learning how to control the spotlight of your attention and decide what it's focused on. And by controlling your stress response, you're control or by controlling your self-talk, you're, you're also manipulating your stress response. And your ability to improve your sense of predictability and control in that particular situation. And you'll do the same thing physiologically. Like you'll, you'll, same as what you might do in the gym, you might do squats until you can't do squats. 
and you're just pushing your ability to to execute a quality pattern under stress and fatigue you're pushing yourself to your limits of your ability to do that and then you're learning from it you're adapting and you're getting better there's different obviously many different ways you can do that you might be like pushing pretty hard and do an intense painful thing or you might be doing a lot of volume work where you're increasing the baseline or the increasing the level of what you can do that you're making feel easy. Um, and a lot of this comes down to mindfulness or self-awareness, like a, an internal knowledge of your self-talk, how you think, what you think about, and the ability to start to regulate that, to understand that your feelings from moment to moment are just passing weather and they don't have to dictate your behavior. Like you don't have to be controlled by your feelings. Your feelings can just be something that comes along for the ride and changes from time to time. Um, one of the biggest pieces of advice that we give people is that you can't wait for, wait for motivation or wait for yourself to feel like doing something in order to do it because motivation is very fickle and it's probably going to go away when you need it. And instead, the way we feel is more a byproduct or a lagging indicator of what we've done, of the actions that we've taken. So we behave our way into feeling differently. Like if you do the things that a motivated, disciplined, driven person does, then you'll start to feel motivated and disciplined. But if you wait until you just randomly feel motivated to do something, you're going to generally be waiting a very long time. You're going to have really inconsistent behavior. So we, we work a lot with people setting up systems and structures that allow them to be consistent in the behaviors that they want without relegating their self-control to the feelings of the moment. You know, like nobody, nobody ever, this is a, this is like a common misconception that like special ops guys or really high level athletes say when you were a triathlete, like there are probably a lot of days when the last thing you ever wanted in the world was to sit on that bike any longer or to get out of bed at five in the morning or to do any other part of training that just sucks for a really long time until it's over. You just did the thing because it was your job because that's what you had to do. You, you didn't feel like doing it. You just did it because that's what had to be done. Let me tell you, let me interject and tell you how I handled exactly that. One, you know, I was a competitive fighter for 12 years and I fought on the third best amateur boxing team in the world, which was the army boxing team. We only got beat by Cuba and Russia. So you're, there's people that, that do hurt. Mm -hmm. They hurt a lot and they're very skilled at hurting you. And my job is to hurt them back. So here's how, and as a competitive triathlete, if it was pissing rain and windy as hell, I would say, ah, right now is when my competition is going to make an excuse. I'm going to go out, train, and be ready for these bastards. And then I would say, always, my mantra was, my job is to give my opponent maximum opportunity to lose. So as a fighter, whenever the going was tough, I said, right now is where everyone's going to give up. This is where I've got to perform. And that's ultimately what got me through it all. And um, I, I didn't mean to cut you off midstream, but I just wanted to share that while it was uh, congruent with what you were sharing. And then I have some things I'd like to share as well once you finish. So go ahead and finish your thought. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that specific example, like when the weather is super shitty and, and a lot of people would find a good excuse to, to stay home or not train or whatever, that's 
that's something that we work with a lot of, with our clients as well. And it's important to keep in mind that we're always training more than muscles. So if you think of that workout, like maybe you're going to go do like an aerobic capacity thing for two hours, like that physiological adaptation is going to stick around for three weeks, maybe, and it's going to fade. It's going to go away in any workout in isolation. Physiologically doesn't matter that much. It's the overall trend or pattern that matters, but you're also at the same time training that skill of perseverance of doing a hard thing when the right thing is hard of when the weather is super shitty when you could have any opportunity to to make an excuse and quit and feel okay about it you're developing the ability to push through and do the hard thing anyway and that that mental pattern of what you do in a difficult moment what choices you make is going to stick around a lot longer than that isolated physiological adaptation. And it's a lot more important in the long run. Because if you have someone who's got great physiology, but they give up as soon as it's hard or it's raining or their feet hurt or whatever, like they're screwed. They're not going to make it anywhere. So that that mental side of what you're choosing to do through your physical training is a really important piece of what you're developing. So it's it's never just about the physiology or what your heart rate is or whatever. You know, like you could probably skip that workout and it wouldn't matter in the long run. But you're also building a mental pattern of being a person who quits when it's hard. And that's the part that's really important. Yeah. There's a few things that I've used in my career and in my life that, uh, and, and others that I'd like to share for people that want to go into some of these tougher training programs that are now being more commonly offered to civilians or for people who might want to join the military, which <laughs> think twice, but if you want to do it, go ahead. So feel free after I give this list or at any point uh, to share your thoughts. But some of the things that I would offer for any of you listening that are good general skills anyhow is don't take criticism personally. Like if someone's telling you you're a piece of shit, uh, which they will, uh, just I, I used to just see it all as a game and it was just a game I had to play like chess or whatever. And, you know, I'm not going to let someone get me off my game by telling them they had sex with my mother last night and it was terrible or something, you know. Uh, next is um, work with your body, not against it. A lot of people, when they start to struggle, they they mentally struggle. And when you add mental struggle to physical struggle, you just multiply the struggle and this is where breathing and rhythm, I think, are very important. And as a competitive athlete, boxer, kickboxer, and motocross racer, I pushed myself super, super hard in my training. And, and what I found is if I used a mantra that, for example, if I was 18 or 20 miles into a hard run and I was trying to keep it at six minutes a mile as my slowest, it could really be challenging and painful. And having been trained by monks when I was younger, I made a mantra, and this is not a religious kind of God, but I, I would chant to myself, God is great, God is good, help me to do what I should. And so I would chant that mantra in rhythm so that my breathing and my strides or my swimming strokes, if it was swimming, I would be chanting it on the inside, not verbally, and it would help tie my whole body together as one integrated unit. And I found that that helped me push a lot further into uh, the resistance that was coming to mind and body and then food and water restriction. 
uh, I think a lot of people, they've never, a lot of, most people have never gone without food or water for any length of time. When I was a kid, my dad would be so dangerous that sometimes I couldn't help myself, but tell him how I felt about things. Like if he was beating up my mother or my brother or whatever, I would voice my opinion about it. And, and fortunately I could run faster than him and he couldn't jump the fence around our house. So once I jumped the fence, sometimes I had to go live in the woods for a couple of days for him to calm down. Because if I didn't wait long enough, he would just beat me up on contact. So I've had to sleep in the woods and be very cold and not have food and, you know, kind of learn to get by and deal with the hunger and, and the thirst. And then sleep restriction. Uh, if if a person wants to work with something that they can manage as, as a developmental practice, anybody can practice sleep restriction. And then, of course, the good old hot and cold treatment, meaning ice baths, cold, start with cold showers, uh, I have a cold plunge. And then I also use saunas. And I find that, you know, cold and heat, as we've kind of alluded to, are both barriers that are fairly easy to access that can really be used to strengthen your inner um, self-management and push you. Uh, I've done a couple of Native American Indian sweat lodges, and I'll tell you what, it took all the tricks in my playbook to get through the sweat lodge. And what helped me stay in it was the first, the first time was both of them. Actually, there was like three quarters women and only a few men. And these women were just so freaking tough. It was mind blowing. And I'm like, holy shit, man, these girls are like made of steel. And so I just really had to go into deep meditation and use my mantras and just calm myself because I was literally going into heat exhaustion by the third round. And I managed to get myself through it, but I honestly thought I might go unconscious. But I said, if these women can do it, I've got to do it because (laughs) they're human just like I am, but, uh, somehow they're managing a lot more pain. So, uh, any comments on those is just basic strategies almost anybody could use. Yeah. I mean, like everything you described is a way of imposing a stressor and, and learning how to deal with that stressor. So there's, there's a specific stress response or stress adaptation that you're making, say your ability to manage cold or heat or sleep deprivation or food deprivation or whatever, and there are tons of you know physiological rabbit holes you can go down. And then there's the general adaptation or the generalized stress response or the generalized skills that you have for dealing with just a difficult situation. Um, I think an important piece to put on that is sort of the, the second part of the, the sweat lodge story is that it's generally not enough to just do something that hurts. Like you have to do something that hurts with a purpose. Like you have to have an objective with that so that you're practicing a specific skill. So like in your case, in the sweat lodge, you said you went into sort of a meditative place. Like you, you analyzed your self-talk and you controlled your self-talk and you regulated the focus of your attention and you managed your stress response. Like those are useful practices. And that's what makes that, that specific stressor beneficial for you because you're, you're learning something in it through experience that you wouldn't know otherwise. Like anyone can say those words like meditation, mindfulness, self-awareness, self-regulation, but those words mean nothing until you've experienced them, until they're a thing that you've done. And knowing something is not the same thing as doing it. So think of like my example of when I first was learning to swim in the military People just told me to try harder, just go swim harder. And I suffered every day. Like I had, I blacked out in the water constantly. 
it was horrible, but it wasn't very productive because I wasn't trying to swim better. I didn't have specific any specific skill I was developing, anything I was trying to do better, like in a deliberate practice kind of sense. I was just suffering. And I got good at kind of generally suffering, but it didn't help me swim better. So when you undergo these things, like say you structure your sleep in a way that you're practicing, like like this was the thing I did as a kid. I got up at like five or six in the morning, which is early for me, to go to the gym and work out by myself or with a buddy. Um, managing that, like getting up early, that little bit of sleep deprivation, having to regulate my sleep schedule and stuff was useful. But that that doesn't mean that just arbitrarily depriving yourself of sleep for another person in a different context is useful. Like you have to have a purpose for what you're doing and understand what skills you're trying to get from this situation, like what it is that you're practicing in that stressful environment that that you want to develop or become better at. So like the sweat lodge thing, you're becoming better at mindfulness and self-regulation and managing your stress response. Um, if you're if you're doing food deprivation, like that's a common thing with like say the weight loss industry or helping people lose weight teaching them through experience that hunger is not an emergency and that they can be hungry and that hunger doesn't increase linearly forever until their head explodes like they can actually be hungry for a while and then suddenly they won't be hungry anymore even if they didn't really eat anything and you won't know that until you've experienced it but you have to have an objective like some kind of learning objective or else someone could just be hungry and then all they know is that they hate being hungry and then they move on Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you've been following my work for any length of time at all, you know how important organic food and organic farming is, not only for the health of the soil and to protect all the little beings in nature from toxic chemicals and throwing nature completely out of balance, which directly affects us, but also for our own health and well-being. We all need nutrient-dense foods for body-mind well-being, And I'm so excited about the Organifi line. Organifi is a product line made of certified organic source materials. And I've checked this out personally. I can guarantee you that. One of my favorites that I've recently tried is their Red Juice, which has Akai and Cordyceps infused into it. It's a super, super tasty product. And it revitalizes skin cells, supports your metabolism, has antioxidants in it, age-fighting nutrients, helps mental clarity. It's got a lovely natural sweet flavor. And something that I found really interesting, if you go to Organifi.com and look up the red juice, they show you a price per serving comparison against Palm Wonderful, Red Bull, Gatorade, and a Starbucks latte. And Organifi red juice is actually significantly more cost-effective considering not only the price but the density of the nutrients in it. I think you'll be really amazed with this red juice, along with all their other products. If you go to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, and as you're checking out, use the code lowercase c-h-e-k-20 altogether, you will get a 20% discount on your Organifi purchases. I'm super excited to share this company I've tested their products, my family's tested their products, and we're all behind them, and I know you're going to be satisfied because this is the real deal. This is true nutrition. Check it out. As you check out, C-H-E-K-20 to get your discount. Thanks for joining me. Hope you to continue to enjoy the podcast, and if you love it, share it with as many people as you can.
a couple of things came to my mind that I'd like to talk about. One, two, three things. One, if people want to hire you for this kind of coaching, you do that, right? Yeah, we do. We, yeah, we have a huge waiting list right now. Uh, we have a thing. There's an application, first of all, and we don't accept very many people. And right now we're pretty much maxed out. Like We can't take on any more people without compromising our ability to work with the ones that we've got. So the application says, like, don't fill this out right now unless you're willing to wait for a long time. But yeah, uh, we do work with people on a one-on-one -on -one basis. We're also developing an app um, that uses a bunch of algorithms on the back end to kind of replicate our training process that we use for individuals on a, in a scalable, affordable way. And that's taken forever. It's been over a year. It's like six months behind schedule. But we're hoping to release that in probably February, sometime in the spring of 2022. Well, you know what the two times three times rule is, don't you? No. The two times three times rule is one that you're experiencing. It says it always costs twice as much as you think it will and takes three times as long as they tell you it will. Yeah. Yeah. So, it seems like deadlines are meaningless concepts to, to tech developers. Like oh, yeah. It, there's I've, no reality there. It's just I've it been nothing. through this with so many programs, video production, course development, whatever it is, software, you know, it, it, so you learn if you don't plan to be delayed, then you end up in a lot of stress because your expectations can, you know, be your own problem. Yeah, yeah we're learning that. Yeah. Now, along the lines of what you were saying, it made me reflect, you know, I was a competitive motocross racer. I was ranked and uh, I had a sponsorship from uh, a Honda shop in our town that paid for uh, pretty much all of my racing because I was good at it and it was good marketing for them. But you can't race motocross without wiping out and, you know, <laughs> you, you, you get hurt. Uh, I've known... I've rehabilitated many of the greatest motocross racers in the world. Um, and they're my clients. And some of them, one of them was recently on my podcast. Um, the point I'm driving at though is, you know, if you wipe out on a motocross bike when you're racing, if you're not dead, the goal is to get back on as quick as you can. <laughs> if you, if you, you know, I have actually wiped out, been a half a lap behind and come back to win races. So the point I'm driving at is if you have a specific target in mind, like a finish line, and you're not broken, completely broken, like I've literally been completely unconscious, had people pick me up, throw water on me, wake me up, get me back on my bike, and I could still be competitive. And I think for me, part of it was just learning that being hurt doesn't mean you're out of the game if you can still control your motorcycle. So I my point is, I think having a real definite target and knowing the difference between being incapacitated and just being, you know, maybe cut up and bruised up or knocked and dazed, uh, or even having a broken rib, you could still, I can still race a motocross bike with a broken rib. It's just super hard to breathe, but you can still do it. Point being, I think having a target uh, is very important so that you know what your objective is and you know there's a possible point at which you can say okay i've i've hit the finish line here so i don't need to do this for 20 days in a row yeah yeah and to be able to objectively evaluate you know that difference between hurt and harm you know like you're in pain but is anything structurally broken like do you have a broken femur like is it is this something that needs immediate attention right now or can you set aside the discomfort for the sake of the objective that you currently have and, and move towards that 
Yeah, I think personally, I think uh, from my background in martial arts and boxing, kickboxing, um, and also a lot of my buddies are cage fighters and elite fighters and a lot of jujitsu. I think for kids, I've got my son in martial arts. I think real proper, uh, you know, martial arts and jujitsu and all those are really good uh, development along the lines of everything we're talking about if they're properly run with a skilled coach. Now, one of the things I wanted to bring up with you, because I think this is really important. I've, I've worked with thousands of people that have destroyed themselves trying to be tough guys. And how do you, what advice do you have? I mean, I certainly have things I could say, but I'd like to hear yours when you're doing this toughness training, you know, whether it be internal toughness or physical toughness, you know, you could be out doing long ruck marches. You could be doing, um, triathlon training, swimming, whatever it is. There's also not a lot of people know where the line is between when they're just dealing with discomfort or something that'll heal. And when they're actually damaging themselves, for example, I've worked with countless athletes that push themselves into stress fractures and had their fourth and fifth metatarsal or their tibia stress fracture. And that puts them out sometimes for four, five, six months, depending on their nutritional profile and, and, and how well they listen to the therapist. So what tips would you give somebody for knowing where the line is between being a tough guy and being an idiot? Uh, short answer is metabolic stress versus structural stress, knowing to distinguish between the two. The, the longer answer involves the definition of toughness or mental toughness specifically and why tough people are more predisposed to those kinds of injuries is toughness. It's a very mental toughness is a very messy concept in the research. It's not, <clears throat> it's not terribly useful and the definitions are sort of all over the place, but if you distill it down, it means goal fixedness for the most part, which is a pretty narrow thing, which is that I have an objective and I'm not going to let anything keep me from that objective. Um, and so if you're a high performing athlete, you're someone who's a business owner, you're an executive, you're whatever, you're a tough person, you work towards something without letting anything deter you. But as an isolated variable, toughness on its own is only helpful up to a certain point. There's kind of a bell curve and you have to consider the other factors that are involved or the other personality traits that are involved with toughness. Um, like we, I don't know if you caught this story, we opened our book with it. Um, my my buddy, the one actually who runs the, the sub five miles when he's in his forties now, when he, he was a, a recon medic in the Marines and he was supervising a sniper training exercise. So a bunch of guys were crawling around in the grass trying to sneak towards an objective in the desert, like get up close to a target. And then they'd either make a shot or they just report, they'd be able to see something like a little number that they had to be close enough to see without being seen. And we'll call him doc. He gave his med brief before this exercise started. They're in the desert in California in tall grass. And he went through all the usual, like these are the things that can go wrong. You're familiar with these, you know, like this is what can go wrong. This is what you do if it does. And one of the last things he said was, and there's a lot of snakes out here. So if you get bitten by a snake, Try to keep the snake. That way they can know if it was venomous and what type of antivenin they'll need to treat it. And Doc is sitting there in a truck, like kind of just glassing the field or watching the field that all these sniper students are crawling around in. And he sees this guy 
jump up out of the grass, throw his arms over his head, kind of like he's doing a burpee, and then just slam back down to the ground and disappear back into the grass. And he's sitting there puzzling over this, trying to figure out what's just happened. And he gets a call over the radio from one of the instructors that ran up to it. And they tell him that they need to go, they need him right now. And he needs to go treat 11 snake bites. And he thinks that Whoa. somehow the entire, the entire like sniper team got bit by snakes. And there's 11 different guys, but no, it was one guy with 11 snake bites. And so this was a very mentally tough uh, scout sniper student who had one objective in his mind. And that was, he's going to scold drag or crawl his way to his, to this target without being seen. And he's crawling along and he heard a rattle and he, he looked up and focused his eyes fairly close in front of him. And there was a really big timber rattlesnake that was coiled up and, and facing him. And, and just as he looked up at it, his one arm was up in front of his head while he was low crawling and it, it bit him and popped him on the arm. So now this guy who has one primary objective, which was complete the stock, like make it to the target without being seen. He now has another objective, which is you have to keep the snake because Doc said, keep the snake. And as you know, like the, the medics in the military, especially in infantry units or, or combat units are sort of like voodoo shamans. Like people just do whatever they say and they don't really question it. So this guy was going to absolutely do what he was told to do without being seen. He was going to get the snake so he could keep it and bring it to Doc and deal with it. Cause he figured he could finish the stock fast enough that he'd, maybe be okay. And so as soon as it popped him on the arm, he reached out and tried to grab it with his other arm, got bit on the top of the hand, I think, and proceeded into basically a fist fight with a rattlesnake laying down on the grass. <laughs> Bad he idea. Got, got bit repeatedly, like the snake worked his way up, popped him on the shoulder, popped him on the top of the head. And then finally he latched onto it and was wrestling with it. And the snake gave up and tried to crawl away. As it was getting away, he grabbed it by the tail and Jump! This is what Doc saw. He jumped up on his feet, threw the snake over his head, and slammed the snake down on the ground and hit its head on a rock and killed it. And then collapsed down into the into the grass and thought he was going to finish his stock and carry his pet snake with him so that he could give it to Doc. But instead, he started blacking out. And that was about when the instructors saw him or or ran up on him and they got Doc. And like a, a, most people, when they heard that instruction if you get bit by a snake, try to keep the snake would put that in context, like try to pin it down with the butt of your rifle or shoot it from a safe distance with a pistol or something, do something safe that allows us to keep the snake so we can identify it. This guy skipped all of that and just went straight to the, I will get the snake at all costs, even if it means a fight to the death under the grass. And as they were loading this guy into the ambulance, he still had, he was mostly unconscious, but he could still kind of talk and see shapes and hear sounds. He was still holding his rattlesnake and he would not give it up because his objective was to keep the snake and Doc told him to keep the snake. So so he had to like hold his face in his hands and tell him, you're done. You did a good job. The mission is over. You got the snake. You kept the snake. You can let it go now. And he finally let it go. But but that's an example of what mental toughness without any other context really is. It's just this irrational goal fixedness where if you have it to an extreme degree like clearly this sniper was a very tough person but you don't combine that with cognitive flexibility or the the capacity to reappraise and adapt to a changing situation then mental toughness can push you into a really dangerous or problematic scenario and that happens with a lot of athletes 
where they're going to follow this training plan no matter what happens, no matter how bad their shin hurts, no matter, no matter what's going on with their shoulder, they're just going to keep pushing forward without reassessing and adapting and changing course. And that's where we get some of these overuse injuries, the stress injuries, you know, like tissue or uh, stress fractures and things like that from pushing into something because you're tough. And that seems like the thing to do instead of adapting. So, so toughness needs to be balanced with other things. Uh, like common sense. Yeah, it's helpful. Yeah, it's rare, but it's definitely necessary. Uh, before I go to my next question to share uh, uh, with you on, um, a thought that came to me that I think is very important and very misunderstood, and it's a real problem for soldiers because I've lived through it myself and I've worked with many soldiers in my career that have PTSD and all sorts of problems. So I'm very familiar with how this goes. And that is this, not only the military, but business, our, our whole business mind, mindset in the West and a lot of other influences have programmed people to believe that to be successful in operations like the military and in business, you have to completely squelch your emotions and they harbor on, it has to be rational. You can't become emotional or irrational. So that's a very dangerous concept and, and one that I've seen uh, be very problematic in military families. Uh, I used to know several military policemen and they spent a lot of time with violence in families, alcohol abuse, uh, drug abuse in the military, which is a lot more rampant than most people realize. What's your words of advice on how to use your emotions as effective uh, guides not just squelching them so that you have a balance between the rational and the unrational because emotions give us a huge amount of useful information if you know how to engage them intelligently. But I think a lot of the problem we have, especially with young men trying to be superheroes, is that they get so brainwashed into the rational that they don't know how to engage the, the feminine aspects of themselves or the unrational emotional components of themselves. So do you have any tips for filtering emotions and knowing how to use them effectively? Yeah, I think, I mean, like a quick side thing, I think the idea that emotions are a dichotomous feminine thing is, is inaccurate. Um, like emotions are, are a universal regardless of sex or gender or whatever. And then Further, like more importantly, rationality, rational decision making has to involve emotion. If you if you are not using emotion, you're probably going to make terrible decisions and you're going to spend a lot of time fixating on minutia that doesn't matter because emotions are like an effective way to guide rapid decision making, especially under stress. And you can develop what those emotions are and the directions in which they pull you. Um, but if you're if you're making decisions as if your emotions or the emotions of the people in your life don't matter, then you're not making a rational decision. That's like saying, like, I'm going to drive my car as fast as I can or as far as I can. But the gas gauge doesn't matter. Like it, it's part of the process. It's part of the, the world that you're operating in. 
Um, if you look at, say, Antonio Damasio's work, he's got several books on this. He's done a ton of really good research on the role of emotion in decision making. Um, and you have to be able to recognize and understand the role that your emotion, emotions play when you think or when you decide things. Um, like you've probably met people, say, with like autism spectrum disorder who do have emotional regulation issues, who have a difficult time integrating emotion into their decision making. And they do absolutely bizarre things because like they might spend an hour and a half trying to decide which pair of shoes to put on or whatever. They'll they have a hard time parsing out what information is valid and should be fixated on and what information should be excluded. Um, there's There are a lot of other studies on, say, the Iowa gambling task is one of them, where when we're recognizing a pattern, um, in this case, they're, they're giving people a gambling task where they're flipping cards or they're choosing cards of some sort, and there are multiple decks to choose from, and they're either rewarded or punished based on the random choice that they make or based on the choice that they make. And in these tests, like one or two of the decks will be weighted to punish them excessively. So if you choose this deck, you might, you're gambling, you might win a dollar, lose a dollar. One of these decks is going to be weighted so that you're going to lose almost all of the time when you choose it. And they'll find that when people take these tests, they will emotionally respond to the bad deck before they're able to cognitively rationalize, before they're able to express what it is that they think they don't know what it is that they're picking up on but some part of their brain has detected a pattern that this thing over here is dangerous and harmful and over here is safer i don't know why but i'm i'm going to avoid this bad thing and they'll have the emotional response it's a measurable change in their autonomic system before they have a rational thought before they have a cognitive thought that they can point to and rationality in most cases or in many cases is just a tool for the rationalization or intellect is a tool for the rationalization of impulse like we can see this in split brain studies where people have their corpus callosum the thing that divides the two hemispheres of your brain severed um that's often that can be a thing in say epilepsy treatment i believe i can't think of all the reasons why yeah, epilepsy is a common one and they'll they'll do these studies on these people where the two hemispheres of the brain no longer directly communicate where they'll block because our our vision comes in through one eye to one side of the brain and the other eye to the opposite. They'll do a thing where they'll give someone an instruction, like go outside of the room and go get a can of Coke. And the person, they'll, they'll receive this information into the, like, so to speak, like non-rational side of their brain, the right side of their brain. So it's coming in through their left eye. I think is how they structure this. The person will get up, get out of their chair and go and walk to go do the thing that they've just been told to do. And then while they're doing it, that, that they'll get interrupted by the researchers and they'll say, what are you doing? What are you, what are you up to right now? And they'll be like, oh, I was thirsty. They'll, they'll generate a reason to justify the behavior. They were given an explicit instruction, but they're not consciously aware that they were given an instruction. They're just following an impulse, but they immediately generate a reason, a rational reason for doing the, that thing for, for the impulse that they're following. So it's a way of illustrating that that what we often think of as rational behavior is just making up a story that feels good, that feels like it makes sense, but in reality we're just we're just rationalizing an impulse that we had. So so you can't take emotion out of decision making, and instead you have to recognize the role of emotion and integrate that into the training that you do. Um, one of the terms for that 
for, for sort of that world is a secondary emotion, which is the emotion that we feel in response to another emotion. So maybe you feel fear for a second, like maybe you look at the stock market and it's just dropped a lot and you feel fear about your you know financial state like maybe you're not gonna be able to pay your mortgage next month and your retirement's just been compromised or whatever you you feel fear and then in response to fear you feel anger and now you start acting angry or whatever um, you might see this in a physical training scenario where someone feels fatigued and in response to fatigue maybe they respond with anger or they respond with sadness or they respond with whatever but a secondary emotion is the, the emotion that we have in response to another thing. And it's usually the second emotion that causes problems. If we look at, say, survival scenarios, like people are in plane crashes, they're lost at sea, whatever, the secondary emotion that people have is often what chases them or drives them to do something stupid. And we can develop that emotion through training. We can develop the emotional response that we have through training. Like, say, your example earlier of... Um, training for your triathlon when the, it's super rainy and shitty and cold outside, that's going to cause a primary emotion, which is maybe some kind of dread and anticipation of being physically uncomfortable. And then you're going to have a secondary emotion. And that could be motivation, that could be stealing your resolve to go do the hard thing anyway, or it could be a desire for comfort. And you can change what that emotion is going to be through training because your emotions eventually reflect the things that you did and felt in the past. We, we use a thing called self-hurting, where when we make a rapid decision, we base that decision off of previous experiences in somewhat similar conditions. Even if those specific conditions have changed, we'll still base the decision we make now off of the decisions we've made in the past. So the way that we train shapes the emotional impulses that we have in the future. So when we're training, we're shaping the emotions we have. The emotions that we have are going to change the impulses that we have, the things that we do when we're under stress and we're thinking rapidly and we're making decisions that aren't really cognitive. Like in special ops selection, say BUDS or special forces selection, whatever, the majority of the attrition is from people quitting. They just hit a low point. They have the shittiest, one of the shittiest days of their life. They're cold, they're wet, they're tired, they're hungry, they're being yelled at and they quit. They just give up. And a lot of times that quitting, it doesn't just happen in the shittiest moments. Sometimes it happens on Monday morning or Sunday night or at lunch in between terrible events when they have a moment to think about it. But sometimes when it does happen in those shitty moments, it's an impulse. When it does, when you're under a lot of stress, you don't have a lot of access to the cognitive part of your brain, like your executive function. Your frontal cortex kind of goes offline when you're under extreme stress. What you're left with is impulses or emotions. And so someone's susceptibility to quitting under stress or doing any other thing that they would probably prefer they don't do most of the time. Um, you know, like everyone has a thing where like I, they say, like, I don't know what I was thinking. It just seemed like the thing to do at the time was an impulse. I just acted on it. And it's usually when they do something regrettable. That, that is driven by a secondary emotion that you have under stress. And you can shape that emotion. You, should, you can shape the impulses that you have that are going to affect your decision-making when you're really tired. Um, but you don't get there, to wrap that around your point, you don't get there by ignoring emotion or pretending that you can think without emotion. Um, you need the ability to recognize and regulate your emotions, but you can't remove them from decision-making without actually becoming really irrational or ineffective at making decisions.
and and also just hurting the people around you. Well, I was going to say it's very dangerous in leadership positions. Um, one of the things I want to clarify is a lot of men and soldiers in particular have a negative reflex to any mention of feminine connection to the emotions. But in the science of consciousness, the feeling nature and one's internal experience of themselves is classified as feminine and the thinking nature and outward projected consciousness is classified as masculine. So when I mention the feminine elements, that's what I'm referring to as opposed to the standard thought of emotion. As Yeah, that makes sense. Hi, everybody. You know, apple cider vinegar is like a panacea that's been shown through all sorts of research to help with just about anything. And I personally love the stuff. I found it very, very beneficial on many levels. And Paleo Valley's apple cider vinegar complex is absolutely awesome. And I've got Autumn Smith, their founder here right now to tell you why it will be a great addition to your life. Autumn, what is it about your cider vinegar complex that we should all know about? <laughs> well, I created the apple cider vinegar complex because I was on a mission to not only live as long as possible, but to feel amazing when I did that. And I learned about apple cider vinegar's incredible ability to help keep our blood sugar very nice and stable, which is one thing we know people who live long, healthy lives have. And then I added organic cinnamon and organic ginger and organic turmeric, all that have different benefits of their own from anti-inflammatory properties to brain benefits. And we put them all into capsules so that you could take it and then have your digestion feel better. You could have more energy. You could have, you could avoid the ups and downs all day long because you have that nice stable blood sugar. And of course, another interesting side is that apple cider vinegar may actually be able to help your body break down glyphosate. So there are so many different ways that you can use this product and reasons that you might. And the the reason it's so important to me is because I want food to be used as medicine. And so we can encourage our bodies to do all of these amazing things simply by the addition of the apple cider vinegar complex. Well, I also love that you have ginger in there because it's a very effective anti-parasitic. And today with the amount of processed food people are eating, uh, it's a really good idea to have some ginger in your diet. So I love this product myself. I use it every morning. And uh, Autumn, where can people get it and what's their discount? You guys can all save up to 15% off with the checkout code CHECK. That's lowercase C-H-E-K 15. And I just wanted to mention too, the number one thing I hear from people is that this complex helps them reduce cravings. So I hope you That's all love it. Yes. So go to paleovalley, P-A-L-E-O valley.com and get your 15% discount. And I hope you love it as much as I do. Are you familiar with HeartMath's research at all, the Institute, HeartMath Institute? A little. It's not really. It's mostly around HRV, isn't it? No, HeartMath is all about the intelligence of the heart and the, the collection of neurons, which they call the heart brain, and how it responds to stimuli, communicates to the brain, and mountains and mountains of great research. There's a phenomenal book called HeartMath by Doc Chillery, and I can't remember the second author's name, but you'd find it absolutely fascinating for the kind of stuff that you're doing and teaching and researching. So like localized adaptations at the sinoatrial node and communication to the brain via the, via the vagus nerve, that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, actually, they're, they're measuring the response 
from the heart in different situations. And so I'll give you an example because it relates to something that you said just a minute ago. What they, one study that's quite profound is they take people and they put them up, they put, they hook them up to uh, biofeedback devices so they can actually monitor the response of the heart and the cognitive response and, and using very advanced technology to do that. And what they then do is they put them in front of a computer screen and they have a computer that's using a random generator. So nobody knows when the next image is going to come up and they mix images that are things like connection, love and beauty with things like gross car accidents or bombs being dropped on people, you know, traumatic stuff. And what they found very conclusively is that the heart already knows what image is coming next six seconds before the conscious mind does. Hmm. So basically what they showed is that one of the reasons that spiritual teachers tell us that the longest journey you'll ever take is from your head to your heart. And the reason it's so important is because the heart is actually really very right brained in its capacity to perceive what's coming in the near future. And it can know it six seconds and register it and be measured before the conscious mind is aware of it. So this, this, the reason I bring this up is because this is intuition training. And in one of the books I read, which was, um, I can't remember which guy it was, but it was a survivor of Vietnam that made it through many, many missions and, and managed to get through without getting injured or captured. And they asked him, how did you do that? And he said, one of the things I learned in such an intense combat environment was that the more I thought about what was happening around, the less likely I was to survive. He said, what I did is I became very aware of what I felt inside. And he said, I learned that I could feel when the enemy was nearby, but I was, there was often no indicators that I could consciously process that I had to trust my inner awareness and he said, that kept me alive. And he, and he said, I got to the point where I always knew where the enemy was hiding. I knew when there was ambushes and I was right every time. But he says, I could never determine that with my conscious rational process. And, and that goes directly to the kind of research HeartMath has showed is, is that when we drop down deeper into ourselves, now, I don't know if the soldier was using his heart consciously. But based on the research I've studied, he probably was tapping into the heart's capacity to act like a radar system and read the environment in advance of him getting there. And I practice this working with things like communicating with plants and animals and, and uh, find that my heart can give me a lot more intelligence than my cognitive mind can, can get. The heart frequency seems to be a higher vibration and it's more uh, sensitive to subtle fluctuations in the environment there's a guy named gavin de becker uh he's based in california i think he's in la wrote a book called the gift of fear uh and he's got a like a psd company like some of the guys i worked with in iraq now work with gavin de becker doing private security kind of stuff like protecting executives or celebrities and and de becker's book was about the importance of instinctive fear or sort of what you're describing that guy in in Vietnam using where you don't necessarily, you're not going to have time to take out a pencil and paper and rationally calculate the probability of an ambush to your right or whatever. Like this is just something that you feel and, and you respond to. And, and De Becker's book was all about like, like sort of honoring that, that sense of fear. 
Um, and if you think of, say, an athlete in flow, like the research on, on the flow state in athletes, if, if they ask them, you know, like they have a perfect basketball game or whatever they do, they ask them what they're thinking Nothing. when they're in that moment. Yeah, they're not. That's the thing. Like flow is sort of the absence of cognitive or conscious thought. And that's that's also sort of what you're trying to develop with some mindfulness or meditation practices. Um, like the ability to, to just be and sense and feel and flow in, in a moment. And, and that's also part of what you're developing with training because as, as you train, you're going from cognitive processes to procedural processes. Like it has to start with a mental model. You have to know what an ambush is, or you have to know what a free throw is or whatever. Like you have to like cognitively consciously think about what this thing is. But over time, that thing that you know just becomes a thing that you do. And then it no longer requires like conscious thought and you don't have to put words to it. It's just something that happens. Um, a drawback to that, that that I've seen a lot in, in the work that I do in the intelligence community and, and with uh, like detecting deception or interrogation kind of work is that it's very easy to develop a flawed sense of, of gut feelings or instincts or whatever if they develop in the absence of negative feedback. So there's a there's a line from a guy named Anthony Weiner. I believe he developed a, a thing called cybernetics back in like the 40s, where the line is, any system that interacts with an external environment without a negative feedback loop will eventually drift out of control. Meaning that if you're in uh, say an interrogation setting, or you're trying to decide if someone's lying to you or not, you can make that decision. This person's lying, or this person's telling the truth. And over time, you're going to develop pet theories, or like a, a sense of like this is I just felt it feels right. I've been doing this for a long time, and you know I've got a gut instinct. But if you don't have a negative feedback loop, if you don't have a way to validate whether your instinct was right or wrong immediately in that moment, then you're pretty likely to screw it up over time and develop flawed theories that aren't actually true. Um, you can think about that guy. There's a great medical example of this. There was a guy who thought that he had an instinct for, for diagnosing some tuberculosis. It was some disease where he would do it by palpating the tongue. Huh. I, I can't remember what disease it was. And and he was convinced that he had this this great instinct for diagnosing people who had whatever disease this was. It might have been tuberculosis. And and this was like in the late 1800s before germ theory really came about, before we really understood bacteria. And he was right quite often because he would palpate people's tongues. And more often than not, he would say, oh, this person's going to have this disease, tuberculosis or whatever. What was actually happening was he was transferring the disease to them because he'd see 10 patients in an hour without washing his hands. He would palpate all of their oh my God. in succession, and he was just giving them all this disease by directly passing infected saliva to them. But he felt like he had a great theory, and he was often very correct in diagnosing that these people were about to develop symptoms of whatever this disease was. He, he, he was telling a story that on the surface was kind of accurate, but the reason it was accurate was completely different than what was happening in his head. And we've seen that there are actually several books on this as well. And some of the data and some of the research we've published um, where people who do a lot of lie detection stuff, that's a setting where say you're in law enforcement, like you decide that this person's lying or you decide that they're not, you don't know. Like there's really no fact checking happening, at least not immediately and not for a long time. And, and so what we've seen when we actually test people in their ability 
to to decide if someone's lying or not is that there are some people who feel that they have really strong good instincts that they've developed for 10 or 20 years and they're wrong as much as 80 plus percent of the time meaning like they're way worse than a coin toss and if they just did the opposite of what they thought was right they'd be really good at it but they've developed completely flawed instincts because they've never had a negative feedback loop and you can see this actually in a lot of professions. There's a ton of research on this in, in uh, developing expertise work, where any field that is devoid of a negative feedback loop or a rapid feedback loop, people tend to get worse at their profession over time because they develop pet theories that are never validated and they cling to them harder and harder and they feel like they're good at this and they've developed a strong sense of it, but they've never really dis- like checked it against reality. And that's sort of the dividing line between who becomes better over time and who does not is their access to a negative feedback loop. So say a trauma surgeon, they know the moment it happens if they make a mistake because the patient dies or starts bleeding or something bad happens and they see it. But if you're maybe a radiation tech diagnosing a tumor, you miss that tumor, you don't know it. Like you might not see it for six months. You may never see that patient again. So in objective studies, like evaluating the accuracy of diagnostics, People who don't have negative feedback loops in their careers or in their fields tend to get worse at making judgments over time. And in reality, a lot of people don't have 10 years of experience in the field. They have one year of experience that they've repeated 10 times. So that guy in Vietnam, he managed to hone his instincts really well because the initial ones must have been right. And then they just reinforce themselves over time. But a lot of people die in combat. And there are a lot of people who have initial impulses that are flawed and that just get shot in the chest or whatever. So, so there, there's a ton of validity to the idea of using instinct or impulse or, you know, gut feelings. Um, but they have to be trained and shaped over time using a clear mental model and a rapid feedback loop of right or wrong, basically. And they, they use that in uh, procedural learning or perceptual learning modules where they use that to train anything from pilots to surgeons, putting them in crux decision-making moments really rapidly and then giving them immediate feedback using like, using like an AV system or digital stuff. Um, like you're using, you're using, an, you're doing an endoscope as a surgeon and you're deciding what to do in this weird situation you just encountered. And, you know, you could practice that in a real surgery you might get one or two surgeries a week and it takes a really long time, or you can make this one tough decision 40 times in an hour or whatever. Like they do it really fast and you get immediate feedback, make the decision, right. Make the decision wrong, make the decision right. And when people have that rapid objective feedback and they learn what's right and they learn what's wrong, they hone their instincts or their gut feelings really well. And and in the research using some of this perceptual learning stuff, people can become pilots or surgeons like the skills that they're practicing they can develop those skills much faster than if they were say just flying planes for real waiting for that one bad thing to actually happen where they practice it they practice all the crux things immediately over and over and over and over and they gain a ton of experience really quickly um and i i, I think it's a fascinating field and it applies to a lot of things like it applies to what we're doing in training people you know, like how fast they learn, how fast they develop, how fast their feedback loops are. Same shooting a pistol, learning how to pick stocks, doing any of that stuff is is based on the quality of your feedback and your ability to listen to it. Yeah. A couple of things rose up in me there. One, 
I teach people how to communicate with their soul and let their soul make decisions. And for somebody that's left brain oriented or not very spiritually uh, developed, that simply means the consciousness within you. And um, it can also be heavily linked to what we call intuition. And and I agree, a negative feedback loop is very important. And people ask me, well, how do I know whether I'm just bullshitting myself? And I say, it's very easy because the choices that you make will cause problems in your life. And if you're, in other words, if your internal justification for listening to your soul is being guided by your ego or your habitual patterns, and it keeps producing negative results, then you're not listening to your soul. You're just, you're basically just acting off of reflexes or program behaviors. So you have to, this is why meditation is so important because you have to learn to distinguish the activity of the ego from the deeper level of consciousness that I'm referring to as soul. But the point being is because I'm teaching people how to do this, for example, to choose what foods they eat or whether they should rest instead of exercise or whether or not they should get married to somebody or invest their money in something that looks promising on paper, but maybe isn't nearly as promising as they think. And what you'll find is the greater the risk or the greater the perceived reward for the ego is, the harder it is to listen to that part of you that I'm calling soul. But that's why I say always start with things that are inconsequential, like letting your soul choose what color socks or clothes you're going to wear, or which shirt you're going to wear, or things that the ego doesn't have a big investment in, or you'll never really uh, learn to trust the deeper aspects of your consciousness that I'm referring to as soul. So the point I'm bringing up is that if you actually practice on a daily basis and let that part of you that I'm calling soul start making decisions for you, your negative feedback loop will always be that one of two things is happening. You're either getting the same or worse results than you were before, or you're getting better results and they become more consistent. And as long as you stay honest with yourself and learn to differentiate the program mind from really what would be the heart mind, the intuitive mind, or what I'm calling soul, then you can have the best of the both worlds. You can learn to use your rational faculty and your intuitive faculty in balance, which would be, again, a balance of the male and female energies from a consciousness perspective. Um, you also uh, mentioned polygraph tests. Mm -hmm. um, I actually used no, used to know and worked with and took a training from Cleve Baxter. Do you know who that is? No, it doesn't sound familiar. Cleve Baxter is the inventor of the polygraph. Huh. He's the one that taught the FBI, the, all this military agencies, how to use the polygraph. When he invented, he set up all the protocols that are probably still being used today. And he's featured in the book, The Secret Life of Plants. And he used his polygraph on plants and all sorts of organisms to show how incredibly conscious they were and uh, some very mind-blowing results. So if you haven't read or listened to the audio of The Secret Life of Plants, it features Cleve Baxter's work, and it's quite a profound piece of work. Write that down. Yeah, The Secret Life of Plants by uh, Peter Tompkins and Christopher Bird. And uh, another mind-blowing book is The Secret Life of Nature by, uh, I think it's... Peter Tompkins. It's a very profound book. And it gets into some of these things I'm talking about, like the intelligence of the soul and, and what people's actual abilities are that exercise them, such as clairvoyance. And there's some phenomenal cases in there. 
do they do those get into like mycorrhizal networks, like fungal networks in the soil and that kind of thing? Uh, from what perspective? Um, basically, that that plants communicate with one another using fungal networks of mycorrhizae and fungi. fungi. Uh, yeah, if you're interested in that stuff, then guess what? The podcast that just released today is me interviewing Monica Gagliano, the world's leading researcher in plant consciousness. Hmm. Her book is excellent. It's called Thus Spoke the Plant. And she was the first person in the world to prove that plants use sound to communicate, which she did using extremely high-powered uh, microphones that she buried in root systems and was able to actually pick up how they talk to each other and prove scientifically that one of the mechanisms of communication is not just chemistry or the fungal network, but they actually use sound frequencies. So that that's podcast is out right now. Another thing that we haven't talked about, I'd like to know if you have any opinion on it. I have a lot of experience in this as a therapist and the Chinese, uh, the system of Chinese medicine was probably one of the oldest systems to point this out. And that is that each of our organs has specific emotional impact or uh, is, for example, the liver is the home of anger. The heart is the home of love or grief. And the Chinese showed that there's positive and negative emotions associated with each organ, but that if that organ's unhealthy, you'll get more of the negative emotions produced as a byproduct of the stress in that organ. So an example of that is I've had a lot of people with anger issues that I found out were suffering from a lot of toxicity and their liver was very backed up. And once I helped them detox and clear their liver, their family members and they all noticed that they weren't having near as much of a problem with anger anymore. So this is something that's very rarely ever talked about that I've ever seen in the field of training soldiers or anybody that's learning how to use a balance of mind and emotions for even high level business skill or self-management. But it's something that I think is sadly missing in those circles. And I've seen countless evidence of it working with all sorts of sick people and People that, for example, I get regularly people reaching out to me, a lot of young people saying that they're having a lot of negative, scary, suicidal thoughts, thoughts of wanting to kill people that they love. And they ask me what they should do. And I say, well, the first thing you should do is follow the recommendations in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, for getting high quality organic foods because they're clean and free of chemicals. If you're smoking pot, switch to only organic pot because they put loads of chemicals in commercially farmed pot that can totally screw your emotional stability up. And you got to get processed sugar and a lot of the food chemicals out of there that they use in foods are highly neurotoxic. And in every single case that a person followed my diet recommendations within two weeks, they noticed that they didn't have these suicidal and negative thoughts anymore. So have you looked into the correlation between the health of a person's organs and their emotional stability? Not, well, sort of. Yeah, in a different lens. Um, the, the frame I'm familiar with or the lens I'm familiar with is uh, primarily the microbiome or the relationship between gut health and mental health. Yeah, um, that's a real one too. The the gut brain microbiome axis. There's a bunch of there's kind of an axis for everything now, and yeah, I mean like, that's because it's all connected, right? Like you're yeah. not going to make a change in the gut or in the liver or anywhere else without affecting all the other stuff, 
like if someone's liver is a wreck, if they've got fatty acid or non-fatty liver disease or whatever, um, they're probably having issues somewhere else. Like the rest of their body is also under stress. And, and that's, that's one of the things that makes it difficult to like identify an isolated variable in the human body because you can't isolate the liver or you can't really isolate whatever the heart that much unless you do a surgery because if you give someone something that makes their liver more healthy it's probably also making their gut more healthy it's probably making their kidneys more healthy it's probably changing all of that and then when their behavior changes which is an emergent byproduct of the entire system then it's difficult to say that that thing was specifically because of the the change to the gut or the microbiome or the heart or the liver or whatever because it all changed um but the takeaway is that that those things matter, you know, like the changes that you're talking about implementing um, had a positive effect on this person. And it, I've, I've never really heard the theory that specific emotions come from like specific organs aside from, you know, neurotransmitters being produced in the gut and that sort of thing. But it's plausible. I know like there have been historic examples of that for centuries. People used to think that the, uh, seat of cognition, like where our thinking happened, I think was initially thought to be the liver. They also, for a while, thought that the pineal gland of the brain was sort of the of where the soul resided. For a while, people thought your heart did a lot of the thinking, like your cognition happened in your heart, which is sort of true, because there are there are things that come from your heart that travel back and forth and affect what happens in your brain. Like that's that's another weird thing that some of that research points to is that there's not really a separation between body and mind. Like what your body feels or what your body is doing is also what your mind is thinking. Your brain is just an organ and it's connected to the same system that everything else is. And there's not really a clear divide between what's body and what's mind because it's all one thing and it's interconnected. Yeah. There are ways you can get more of an isolation uh, to get more diagnostic information. For example, it's well known now that each of your glands and organs has a vibrational frequency that it operates on, and those can be measured. That's been measured. There's many charts showing that. So just like you can monitor with the heart with an electroencephalo or electrocardiogram in the brain with an electroencephalogram, you can monitor the energy field, and there's many uh, systems out there. BioWell is one of them. There's a number of them that can tap right into the frequency of the organs and tell you from moment to moment how the energetics of that organ is changing. You can drink a certain type of water or take an energy medicine or a supplement and monitor how it's responding. Uh, one of the ways that I'm able to do that is because I know the anatomy and, and have studied extensively and I produce for my students an entire collection of maps showing what all the neurological connections for each of the glands and organs are of the body. And because each gland and organ shares through the sympathetic nervous system a connection to muscles, which then regulate joints, I can show you, for example, the right shoulder commonly responds to liver pathology. So many people have come to me from baseball players to football players to javelin throwers to carpenters who are having chronic right shoulder problems that don't seem to respond to therapy. And I've had many surgeons refer me patients with chronic rotator cuff pain but they don't have anything orthopedically wrong. And I know that that directly links to the liver because the liver uses those muscle pathways to basically dissipate stress. 
So what you have is what's called a visceromotor reflex. So if the energy going through any of the organs goes higher than the natural frequency range of that organ, it triggers a dissipation of that stress through the sympathetic nervous system and it uses the muscles. So the muscles that are linked to that organ begin to go into low level spasm or start having fasciculations or contractions. And then the rotator cuff is chronically being used to dissipate that stress. And even minor contractions of the muscle cause a significant decrease in circulation. Research uh, by Gunnar B.J. Anderson in the book Occupational Biomechanics showed, for example, that if you contract a muscle of only to only 5% of its maximum contractility, it can reduce blood flow through the muscle 50 to 75%. So when you have organs dissipating stress, remember the word disease means dis-ease, too much energy. So if someone's, for example, drinking shitloads of coffee, it can overstimulate the liver, which then results in the rotator cuff and the muscles surrounding the right shoulder going into a low-level contraction. And what was electrical energy now becomes heat and is transferred out of the body due to the contraction of the muscle. The muscle that gets the most connection to all the glands and organs is the diaphragm. It's just like a, a, a it's like a, uh, uh, air traffic control system. If you looked at the neurology of the diaphragm, it's loaded with connections from the entire visceral chain because it's active 24 hours a day. So even when a person's laying in bed, the diaphragm's a great target for dissipating stress. And this is one of the reasons so many people have shallow breathing and breathing pattern disorders because their diaphragm's under chronic load from visceral stress. Point being is I can not only ask you questions and use questionnaires and run blood tests on you that tell me, for example, about liver enzymes, I can look at your structure, check the tone of your muscles, look at your history of injuries and the related joint structures. And you you, when you compile all the data, it gives you a lot of evidence as to where to look. And so, for example, I can say, I agree with everything you're saying, but if you have enough data and you know the connections, then your probability of being right goes up to the degree that your information gathering is effective. Mm -hmm. I think and you mentioned the, the diaphragm, the respiratory diaphragm, and I think that's a really important point in that, I mean, we never stop breathing. Like it's always, it's always in play in some way. And, and what the respiratory diaphragm is doing is also reflective of the position of our rib cage, the position of our spine, of our respiratory patterns in general. The you know like there are direct inputs into the autonomic nervous system in the spine via sympathetic ganglia. So when you change the position of your spine, you're you're changing what your autonomic nervous system is doing. So whether you're shifted towards a sympathetic fight or flight type response or parasympathetic rest and digest response. The way you're breathing, the the frequency and depth of your respirations is also a, a like two-way feedback loop going between your brain and the rest of your body that adjusts your stress response. Um, there's even things like, say, the behavior of your lymphatic system is dependent on the mechanical action of your rib cage as it moves up and down. And, you know, the way you breathe affects your ability to clear waste products through your lymphatic system. So if you have a locked-up respiratory system, like you have someone who's really shallow breathing or doing just the belly breathing or whatever, um, they may have issues in their like immunological consequences from that because it changes the function of their lymphatic system. And it, it ties into the glymphatic, glymph with a G system in the brain, which is basically the lymphatic system in the brain that, that is clearing away um, 
waste products in the brain while we sleep. And that is also affected by our ability to dip or autonomically drop into a deeper parasympathetic state during sleep, which is affected by our respiratory patterns, what the diaphragm is doing as well. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating how interconnected and, and complex the body is. I mean, I was also, I, this is just a random side track. I was reading a book about jaw development and how much that affects autonomics and respiratory patterns and your ability to sleep for your entire life, which pretty much changes everything else as well. And a lot of that comes down to like chew real food when you're a kid <laughs> so that your jaw has a stressor that makes the growth plates develop so that your jaw develops and you have room for all your teeth and then you have an airway and then you can sleep. Yeah, well, I'll give you a tip. You know what one of the most important developmental factors for a normal functional jaw is? Hmm. Whether or not you were breastfed or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's in the, yeah, the book that I just read, which I think was just called Jaws mention that because it's a it's a challenge like it's a stressor to the baby to to have to do that where the a, like a bottle is a passive way of getting food in there's no mechanical stress on the jaw or the jaw muscles and so there's no trigger for growth it trains the muscles of the mouth and the jaw and the tongue to work completely incorrectly i don't have time to give you the whole mechanics but just so you know all this stuff is taught in my check training program that's, oh, that's in my four year every bit of it and and a lot more that we haven't discussed. I think it'd be fascinating for you and everybody listening to go to my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash Paul C-H-E-K live. And when you're there, search the Czech totem pole, C-H-E-K totem pole. And it's a system I developed to show you the hierarchy of control of the survival reflexes in the human body, which we use to guide Czech professionals as to how to perform a proper assessment so you know if the problem that you have in your low back is actually a back problem or is it coming from an organ or is it coming from your diaphragm or is it coming from your upper cervical spine is it coming from your eyes your ears your teeth malocclusion etc so i show people how to do that and my system's been researched and one of my students who's also a chiropractor and osteopath used it as uh, I think it was a PhD thesis, found 148 studies that completely supported the system I developed, which I researched for many, many years to develop. But uh, I think with the knowledge that you have, you'd find my check totem pole quite fascinating. And you can easily then take that and into your observational field and say, oh, there it is. There it is. That's useful. That's cool. I, the, the malocclusion stuff, especially like it's so poorly understood by like the gen pop training world, you know, like, like, like a physical fitness performance world has no idea, but it, it's a big deal. It's also it can be tough to know what to do about it. Like once your jaw is developed and you're an adult, you've got a limited range of options. Like they're, you know, the bite splints and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, there's a lot you can do, but sometimes it requires surgery to fix. And I've worked with countless elite athletes who had chronic injuries that wouldn't heal or performance deficits um, that they just couldn't surmount. And I tracked it right to malocclusion or, or growth and development disorders of the jaw. Um, and so, sometimes you can do it with a carefully designed bite splint. Um, with a lot of athletes, I have to have them custom made uh, mouth guards, just like when you're fighting and you wear a mouth guard, but they're very custom made. They're called declusion devices. Um, hmm. 
too, too technical to get into in a few minutes, but that's all part of the Czech Institute's training program. And, it, and uh, it's very, very comprehensive, which is why we have to build people up progressively over the years, because by the time you get to the third level, which is now IMS4 and Integrated Movement Science 4, the level of anatomy and physiology and manual therapy skills is very, very high. Uh, so you have to be developed over time or you're just in so deep, your brain will just fry. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, the, my, my wife is an example. As it's, I have a very similar pattern. Her back molars don't quite touch when she bites down. And if we give her like a popsicle stick to bite down on, give her a contact point or reference point between those back molars, her cervical rotation range of motion in like doubles. She can she can move her neck so much better, and it's just it's just giving her a reference point or a reference center in her back teeth. And it's we she our our dentist tried to make her a bite guard to at least sleep in to prevent bruxism or like you know clenching and grinding at night. But they don't seem to understand very well what they're doing. They basically just made a generic football mouth guard, you know, and it, it doesn't really help her. You got to go to a biological dentist. They're the ones that know that kind of material. I've worked with many of them all over the world and they're very skilled. I've lectured at biological dentistry conferences. And mm. if you want that kind of help, you need a biological dentist. Googling this. <laughs> Have you heard of the field of uh, forwardontics? There's another term that was really difficult to remember as well, but it, that the book I read on jaw function talked about like an alternative to orthodontics that was based on like sort of this theory of helping the jaw develop fully um, primarily with kids. It's harder with adults, but um, they're sort of trying to change the field of orthodontics by changing their focus on like the developmental shape of the jaw as people, as kids are growing. Yeah. There's a fair bit of that out there. Um... I don't know how valid it is. I, I, haven't gotten that far in the research. But. Well, there, there's a lot of validity to all these things. I've studied them for years, and I have a whole pile of that stuff in my library. Many of you are aware of the importance of magnesium, but very few are aware that most of the magnesium products out there are not high quality and seldom do what they say they'll do on the bottle or the package. But Bioptimizers has produced the most comprehensive magnesium breakthrough product on the market. I've got Wade here to tell us a little bit about it. Wade, what makes your magnesium breakthrough product so unique? Well, I think because we combine a variety of magnesiums. In fact, we use seven different types. So if you look at all the research papers out there, you'll see that they'll use various magnesiums, whether it's orotate, malate, you know, sucrosomial is a hot one that's just come out recently. And they're rated on bioavailability. But the biggest component that a lot of people don't understand with magnesium is that different types of magnesium are uptaken by different parts of the body or different organs, some in your brain, some in your nervous system, some are vasodilators. And so there's a variance in people's responses depending on what they need magnesium for. So we went out to try and solve this problem by combining all seven of the best magnesiums into one single capsule, which was very difficult because number one, the bonding size was different. The nozzles for the machines wouldn't work. We don't use any fillers or uh, chemical uh, excipients, the flow regulators. And then we got them in the caps and the caps rose. We had to do special aid caps. But when we solved all those problems and turned it out for ourselves because we were tired of buying, you know, I had a whole counter full of magnesiums. Well, guess what? A lot of people said this was the best magnesium product 
they've ever taken. And after being in this business for 18 years, it's quickly moved to our number one selling product in Bioptimizer history. What are just two or three things that magnesium is really supportive of? I know sleep challenges is one of them. What are some of the other key issues? Well, it acts as a down regulator for your nervous system to kind of help you relax and go into, you know, out of fight or flight. And that's the biggest factor, especially today in a, in a high blue light electromagnetic frequency world that we find ourselves in a high stimulus environment. It's also critical for vasodilation. And vasodilation increases blood flow. And many times when we are suffering from a variety of pain or conditions in the body, it's because we're not getting oxygen in or toxins out of those tissues. And you've written a lot about it in your work. And so magnesium breakthrough, because it's so powerful and not available uh, in North American diets because of what we've done with farming, uh, it's a great way to augment your diet. And it's easy to get. You go to magnesiumbreakthrough.com or magbreakthrough.com slash living4d. You can get a 10% discount and it's a money back guarantee. If it's not the best magnesium you've ever taken, you get your money back. Mag, M-A-G, breakthrough.com, magbreakthrough.com forward slash living4d. And is there a discount for the listeners? 10% for all, right. all the listeners. All right. Give it a go, you guys. Everything I use from Bioptimizers is the best I've ever used. That's why I love Wade and Bioptimizers. So you've heard how it's made, why it's made, and how it works. If you want the best, go get it. By the way, I wanted to share with you and the listeners all this information about the gut-brain connection. A lot of people think that's new stuff, but if you want to really have a fascinating read, get a hold of the book called The Abdominal and Pelvic Brain by Byron Robinson, MD. It's, you, mm. you could probably get it for free, but here's the punchline. Guess when it was published? 70s is going to be my guess. The first edition was 1899, the second edition, <laughs> 1908 or 9, and I have both of them. I've read them thoroughly, and it will absolutely blow your friggin' mind when you see how thorough these books are. And I've had people tell me, oh, that information wasn't known until 2000 and something when the book The Abdominal Brain came out. I said, no, that book not only... Uh, is way, way, way behind Byron Robinson's work. It's not nearly as complete. And this guy was a genius medical doctor that extensive research and every single piece of the artwork of the anatomy he drew himself. And you will not believe how beautiful and complex the anatomy drawings that he did are of ganglia and everything. It's just a wicked piece of work. Hmm. That's interesting. I'll have to check that out. That's I mean, that's a good point. Like, these are things that we've known in some way for a long time. Like, medical technology will advance. We'll be able to, you know, like, sequence the microbiome in the gut or something. But that doesn't mean that it's the first time someone's heard of that. It's just the first time we've had that particular lens to be able to, to look at it that way or validate that portion of it or whatever. But, yeah, there are a lot of these things. Like, a lot of it's not new. A lot of it is, have been things that people knew a century ago or more. Um, yeah physical performance stuff as well. Just go find a gym from the 1920s. Yeah, you know, the the reason I brought up the organ connection was because I'm making a point and I will make the point very directly. The point is if you really want to reach your potential in anything, 
athletically or as a super soldier or whatever your dream is, or as a martial artist, for all the reasons we've discussed, you've got to take care of your body and you have to have sound Hmm. diet and lifestyle practices. And so many of these athletes and soldiers eat shit food all the time. And even the food in the military is shit. It's by no means organic. It's usually cooked to death. It's crap. So it always used to amaze me that they're trying to make all these great soldiers, but they feed them poison all the day. Fucking MREs. <laughs> I, I get so mad about MREs. They're such garbage. Yeah, you might as well just eat sawdust or something. They're terrible. They're just like a bag of corn syrup and soybean oil. They're, they're, they're absolute shit. Yeah, I, it's someone pulled off a hell of a scam to be the guy who profits from making MREs out of like basically agricultural waste products and and giving them to soldiers. They're fucking terrible. That's the point I'm making. You see so many of these young, especially male athletes, but a lot of females too, they're hell bent for leather to be a champion. They'll do all the kinds of things we've talked about, but they walk around drinking garbage, eating garbage, staying up late at night and burning themselves out. And then they can't figure out why their emotions are out of control. And that leads to someone either pushing themselves into self-destruction or having secondary emotions that cause them to give up or have a lot of negative thinking or start becoming problematic in their relationships, which can then you end up being someone who's like really focused on being a great martial artist or getting through buds training, but you're ruining your relationships all around you because you don't realize that you're toxic as hell and you're out of calibration on the inside. Mm -hmm. I I think about that a lot. I think one of the reasons that's so pervasive is that we're not good at understanding things that have long time lags like like you know like an 18 year old can eat absolute garbage and it's not going to have a major effect on like their health it's not going to give them chronic diseases usually i mean kids now can give themselves diabetes which is impressive but but they're not going to develop a lot of the health problems that they will after 10 or 15 years or 20 years of pushing at that they're not going to see like a huge deficit in their physical performance especially if they're kind of a big fish in a small pond kind of person like an olympic athlete will but if you're just trying to be good at your local crossfit gym it probably doesn't really matter that much when you're 19 years old whether you're eating shitty food or not, like you're not going to pay the price for that. You're not going to see what it's doing for 10 or 15 years sometimes. And I think that's one of the, one of the things that leads people to, to make these kind of mistakes is there's, there's not an immediate feedback loop, you know, like you eat that shitty food once or twice. It it usually happens gradually or you're you're raised with it anyway. and, And it doesn't seem to matter. You think you're magic. And then by the time you're 35 years old and you shit blood, like it's too late. It's you're 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 not going to undo that. Like you can correct it. It's going to take just as long to fix it, but the damage is done. And and it's that delay in the signal that really gets people where they don't understand the importance of it because there's not a smoke alarm going off as soon as they do it. The problem is is that our culture is very dangerously ill-educated. Parents, coaches, therapists, and doctors don't know where to look. But I have an online course that I specifically took out of my professional holistic lifestyle coach training level two and cut eight hours of it. It's called Primal Pattern Eating. And in there, I show many ways anybody, regardless of age, can get immediate feedback. For example, vision will change very quickly if you raise your blood sugar up too high. 
So if you, if you, for example, as a soldier are trying to shoot at targets that are three or 400 meters away, and I give you too much blood sugar, you're going to, you're going to find those targets get fuzzy and you can't see very well. But until you actually correlate the soda pop you just drank with your shooting range performance, you're not, you're just going to think, oh, I had a bad day at the range, but I'm going to look and say, okay, watch this. Tomorrow, I'm going to feed you something that's appropriate to enhance your vision, not destroy it. So I actually have a whole series of tests that people can do. A very simple one is you can take a piece of paper, lay it on your hand, and then you just relax and see how much vibration there is in the paper. Then all I got to do is give you a teaspoon of sugar or something that'll throw your blood sugar up, stimulate your sympathetic nervous system, or drink a cup of coffee. And the magnitude of that fluctuation in the paper will double or triple. And oh. it'll happen within a few minutes. So for those listening, if you want to really learn quick ways, even for kids to see the effects of diet very quickly, just check out my primal pattern eating online training program. It's an eight hour training program. And it teaches you how to use diet logging, how to use muscle testing for guidance from your body on what you should and shouldn't eat or drink and how to connect to your soul. Um, fascinating conversation, Craig. Well, Craig, it's been a fantastic conversation so far. I'm really enjoying it. And you're sharing a lot of great information. If you could just narrow it down to two or three simple tips, what suggestions can you give people, uh, in general? So they have strategies for stress management. I know there's a ton of stuff out there on awareness and all sorts of stuff, mindfulness, but just coming from your own perspective, if you had to say there's three key things that I would recommend for general stress management that anybody can do, what would they be? I think one sort of an oddball thing that, that's always been helpful for me is what I call the three-minute rule, which it just kind of formed in my head during training. And that was the idea of really understanding how much you can get done in three minutes if you really have to. Oh. So in three minutes, you can probably take a complete shower, change clothes, not, not all of these things at once, but individually, take a complete shower, change clothes completely, eat a meal, run half a mile, pack enough shit to leave for a week somewhere. Like there's, there are a lot of things that if you really, really motivated, you could do in about three minutes, which means like when you're doing in say like crisis management mode, like something happens that you have to respond to very quickly. It's a, it's a useful way to sort of level set yourself or calm yourself down in responding to something that has to happen quickly in knowing how much availability you have even in the space of three minutes to get something done. And it's, it's a good way to, to level set yourself. Um, I think a second thing would be, we talked a lot about like feedback loops and specific mental models in practice. Um, and if you're, if you're working on managing stress better, it's useful to have specific mental models for doing that. And there's, there are a bunch of different uh, tools that we teach for that. The, the book, our Building the Elite book that you have in front of you has a whole chapter on it on different mental skills. But one of them, for example, that is really common is called segmenting, which is just breaking down a long, difficult thing into small, manageable pieces. So if you're running a mile, you don't think about running the mile. You think about the next five steps and what you're going to do with your breathing or you make it to the next tree or whatever. You know, you make it small and manageable. And if you make the pieces small enough, no matter how long the overall process is, you can always do that next little step. And, and that's one of the, the most common mental skills that we teach with like our special operators getting through selection or even just like the, the normal people at our gym. 
um, for managing their days. There, there are other things like segmenting, or not segmenting, sorry, compartmentalization, which is just the conscious practice of recognizing, accepting an emotion or, or physical discomfort or whatever is problematic, and then consciously setting it aside as not important to what you're trying to accomplish right now. So if you're in the middle of a workout, it might be that you're setting aside physical discomfort. Um, if you're having a terrible day at work, it's setting aside your emotional anger or whatever and just focusing on the thing that needs to be done. It's not about suppressing. It's just about categorizing or compartmentalizing and, and knowing that you can deal with that thing later when it matters. Um, as a third thing, I think it's, it's kind of trite to say, but uh, sleep management or sleep systems or rituals you have around your sleep are probably one of the most important things you have for managing stress in the long run. Um, no matter how good you are in the moment, you know, day to day, if over time, every single night your sleep is compromised, it's a little variable, you're not sleeping as deeply as you should, um, the system's going to degrade. Like your body's going to pay for that. Your mind's going to pay for that. And sort of like nutrition, a lot of the stuff that makes for good sleep is not exciting or interesting. It's just hard to do consistently. Uh, so things like managing your light exposure in the evening, managing the evening routine that you have so that you're not doing something that's extremely mentally stimulating right before you're trying to go to bed, um, knowing the right timing for meals for you. Like some people don't sleep well if they eat real close to bed, things like that. Um, temperature management, light management, sound management. Like for me, I have some hypervigilant stuff from the military because I was always sleeping in combat zones. Uh, so I'm always listening and responding to stuff at night. So I sleep with earplugs most of the time. And it's amazing how much I can just drop down and sleep when I turn that signal off that otherwise I'm paying attention to. So sleep, or sorry, uh, dark, cold, and quiet are kind of the, the three big things with your sleep environment. And it sounds easy, but most people will have a deficit there somewhere. They've got highway noise next to them. They've got a bunch of digital things, shining lights at them when they're trying to sleep, things like that. And managing those things. Yeah. Radiation from routers. Uh, I have, a, just so everybody listening knows, I have a whole chapter on that in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy. And we also have a section on that in our um, Holistic Lifestyle Coach Level 1 training online, which is our public access program. Uh, do, you, do you go into some sleep management strategies in your book? I'm trying to think. Not really, I don't think. Yeah, because I didn't. I looked through the whole book and I didn't see any, but I wanted to make sure I didn't overlook it. So, for those of you interested, my book "How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy" has a whole chapter on that, covering all the key things that you need to know. Uh, the only one thing I would say that's not in there is if you have a wireless system in your house, unplug it at night. It can make a huge difference in the quality of your sleep, and if you have pain in your body, it can drastically reduce the amount of pain at night. Uh, I've got lots of experience with that issue uh, from my own injuries and experiences. Um, now, I don't suspect you've seen my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, but I do reference John Berardi in there, and I know you work with Precision Nutrition. So if you wanted to share uh, two or three diet tips that will help people uh, manage their stress and perform better in general, what would you think were your uh, top two or three tips that anybody can apply <laughs> aside from quit eating junk. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's the thing. Like all roads lead to broccoli when it comes to nutrition, like most of it comes down, no matter what 
route you take, most of it comes down to, to fundamental things like eating more vegetables and less shitty processed food. I think the mistake we make at coaches is kind of like we talked about at the very beginning of this interview, like not being the track coach who's yelling at your athletes to run faster. That the eating broccoli thing, you can see it as an input into a system, but it's also an outcome. And you tell your client they need to eat more broccoli or, you know, whatever, drink more water, do, do something better. There are countless other supporting skills that have to happen first in order for them to be able to eat broccoli on a regular basis. Um, first, they have to be able to identify it. They have to know what, you know, like sometimes your clients may not know what carbs or fat are. Um, and they, they have to be able to grocery shop. They have to be able to read labels. They have to be able to plan meals. They have to be able to prep food and store it and cook it. And there are a lot of skills involved in all of those things. And any one of them could be a limiting factor that keeps them from actually eating broccoli. So just standing there and crossing your arms and saying, Hey, fatty, eat vegetables. Like it doesn't, it doesn't really help because you're not identifying any of the things that help them do that. It would be like me in the military in my early days with someone telling me to swim faster. Like I tried, my heart almost exploded, but I didn't know how to swim better. And, and I needed, you know, like the specific skills that would support that to, to make that happen. So it's important to look at the full context of your, your client's life or of someone's life and identify what it is that's preventing you from making these somewhat fundamental or basic behaviors more consistent in your lifestyle. And it's probably not that you just need to try harder or feel worse about yourself when you screw it up. It's, it's probably that there are structural things that need to happen. Like we use the phrase um, systems over symptoms. So don't just chase the the symptoms of it, you know, like, like failing to eat vegetables for dinner is a symptom of a bigger system. Like you have to address the things that are supporting or producing that. Um, um, another, another big piece of it. That's another simple thing is if it's in your house, you're going to eat it eventually. Yeah. Um, so, so relying on willpower never really works, not for long. So if you're trying to not eat Oreos, don't fucking put Oreos in your house. If you have them in your house, get rid of them. Uh, and that is another thing that's very obvious, but you'll also feel a lot of resistance toward it. Um, you'll see a lot of, you know, people that, that have to have a reason to have some kind of junk food in their house. Maybe it's for their kids or for guests come over or whatever. They'll, they'll come up with an excuse to, to keep it handy and it's going to find its way in. So if you're serious about doing this, just, just cut the cord, throw that shit out of your house. And, and then you don't have to rely on willpower so much. There's, there's a lot of research on willpower in general. And, and what they find is that the people whose behavior is reflective of high willpower who do the things that someone with a lot of willpower would do, um, they actually express the least amount of willpower generally because they've structured their lives in a way that they don't have to rely on willpower to consistently do things. And it's the people who are just trying to grit their teeth and suck it up and suffer through temptation or difficulty or struggle their way through stuff that that burn through willpower pretty quickly and are really inconsistent with their behaviors. So the people that are more successful have better systems. Yeah. One of the things about willpower that I teach my students and my patients and clients is I say willpower is like the gas pedal and the brake pedal is what I call won't power. If you're always on the gas pedal and you don't know how to use the brake, you're going to kill yourself. Even if you think you're a good driver, because a skilled race car driver is as, as expert with the brake pedal as they are with the gas pedal. 
and our culture doesn't really teach us won't power because there's no profit in people managing themselves the way you and I are talking about. So this is why I say if you have a big enough dream, you don't need a crisis. So you have to have a a North Star. you got to have a compass bearing or you have no reason to use won't power and you just will power your way through it. Oh, I'm going to eat this crap, but I'll just train harder tomorrow, not realizing, well, that training harder isn't really going to remove the toxins from your body nearly as effectively as just not eating toxic food. There's that. And fortunately, everything you mentioned is also covered in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, for those that haven't read it. Um, but those are great points. I appreciate that. This is, I'd like to switch a, a little bit here on our topic. You know, with all the training you have and experience you have, I think you're a great guy to ask this question. How do you determine the magnitude of a threat so you know how to prepare? How do you keep your mind from the dangers of making the enemy bigger or smaller than they really are? And that could be a martial arts competition. It could be your thoughts about how hard a triathlon is going to be, or it could be a real threat in the environment, which for, for a lot of people, we're in one of those environments right now. And a lot of people are freaking out and, uh, you know, doing irrational things. There's concerns about the banking system collapsing, about food supply, and there's already huge increases in food prices and shortages of food. So there's a lot of things going on in the environment right now that are triggering a lot of fear reactions. So what I really like to hear from you is how do you determine the magnitude of a real threat and keep your mind from making the enemy bigger or smaller than it actually is? Mm, that's kind of one of the great questions of like combat or or military tactics in general. And like, say when I worked in Iraq, I was there as a civilian contracted through the State Department, uh, which meant I had no protection. At one point, I was an illegal immigrant with a gun in Iraq. Uh, my visa had expired. And if I had <laughs> gone home, I wouldn't have been able to come back in the country and keep my job. So there was a whole team of us running around that were just illegal immigrants, um, which meant that we traveled with uh, a shit ton of money on us. And if anything bad happened, we were going straight to the airport and trying to buy our way out of the country because we were subject to Iraqi law. And we would have gotten rolled up and put in jail for probably a very long time and just waited for Iraqi lawyers to decide that we were worth talking to or whatever. Like when that happened, it did happen sometimes. Guys would have to like get their families to help buy them out or whatever. So, so they're like our saying there and, and part of our training was that every bullet has a lawyer on it, uh, meaning that. If you make that decision, you have to you have to be able to justify that decision, and and you're fucking going to like you're you're gonna you're gonna be talking to a lot of people about it as soon as you do something like that. Um, so that's structured in our case through, as as you know anyway, rules of engagements and escalation of force protocols. And there's a video of me actually uh, with Ted Koppel from forever ago. Um, where we're reading through our rules of engagement and the escalation of force stuff because we had to do it out loud every time we went outside the wire, every time we did a red zone run and talk about like, here are the things that we do and here's how we respond. And it's, it's a very structured protocol. Like it's not, it's not a lot of like make it up as you go, do what feels right. It's like you do X when Y happens. And basically you only return the level of fire that you're receiving. It kind of puts you in a compromising position in a way in that you don't get to proactively shoot at someone because you think that that maybe they need to be shot at. Like you have to wait until you're taking effective fire from an identified clear source, which is 
kind of problematic sometimes. Like it feels terrifying knowing that you're not going to be able to shoot back until you've been shot. Um, but that's a lot of what the training is, is in making those rapid decisions. And we talked about like secondary emotions and developing the ability to, to kind of flow or go by instinct on it and rapidly perceive what's happening happening around you. And a lot of that happens through a stress inoculation process where you're, you're following what's a fairly simple protocol, you know, like a shoot, don't shoot scenario. And it's just been sped up and they added stress to it. And you do that in training more and more and more to where, you know, like there's, there's a lot of go, no go or shoot, don't shoot criteria with distractors and things like that. So you practice that decision-making under increasing levels of stress and realism. And you do that in a way that you always put mastery before stress. So you make sure that you can make that decision cold, like with low stress, like you, you know what the difference is between an active threat and an inactive threat. Like, you know what that gun looks like, or you know that this person is a threat when there's no stress, there's no smoke, there's no guns, there's no noise, there's no one yelling at you, nobody's throwing blood at you or whatever. Um, once you know that you can make that decision well cold in a low stress setting, then you practice it in a higher stress setting in, in increasing like graduated training protocols. And you get to the mastery side of it through kind of what we talked about earlier, the deliberate practice side of it, where you have a clear mental model, a rapid feedback loop of specific training criteria, and you make and learn from mistakes at the edge of your ability as you go. So you make sure you can do something really well, and then you add stress to it and make sure you can do it well under stress by managing your stress responses. But the the question of like, how do you identify the magnitude of a, of a threat? Um, it It is somewhat subjective and we talked a lot about rationality and, you know, like emotion plays a role but you have to, you can't run away with fear um, in those moments, in those decisions, because that's where a lot of terrible shit happens when people just get scared. Like if you watch some of the videos that have come out, um, you know, like cops shooting people that are like unjustifiably, um, if you, you listen to those cops, like they're terrified and they're poorly trained and they're nothing but a limbic system with legs. And scared of what's happening yeah and and like they've they've been trained to solve a problem with a gun and and that's what they do and and it's that fear is running away and they haven't been sufficiently trained to make decisions under stress um so so some of it comes down to managing your stress response using things like breathing self-talk things like that so that you retain executive function or cognitive function and you're able to reason your way through because if if you let anger or fear run away with you, especially in a scenario where you're going to be held accountable to what you do and you might get rolled up in Iraqi prison if you make a mistake, like you want to make sure that you're thinking through the decisions that you make and that it's not made out of fear um, because that's hard to justify. I think I, I, I really love what you've shared, but I think um, because most people aren't going to be in that type of situation, I'll give you a bit of a reframe on the question. I've interviewed two women that were raised in Iraq and had to live through years and years of war. And I've also seen interviews with people that were in Germany when Hitler started uh, organizing his takeover of the world and uh, getting rid of the Jews and all sorts of indicators like that. And one of the one of the things, in fact, I interviewed a girl yesterday, literally yesterday, who uh, spent 
the first seven years of her life during the Iraqi war and her father was a military official and gone all the time and it was extremely stressful, uh, bombs going off constantly and she developed all sorts of serious health and PTSD issues. But one of the, the, the I'll give you an example of what I talked about with her. What I'm asking you is what do you recognize in the environment when something is happening that potentially could be much more threatening than the average person realizes. And I said to her, what happened in your environment that let you know that the life and the way you were living was changing in a way that was threatening and dangerous? Guess what her first response was? And it came almost immediately. Mm. Censorship. Mm. She said when the shit started hitting the fan, they started censoring what people were saying to each other, what they could say, and there was more and that control began to get worse and worse and worse and the next thing you know there was a takeover happening and and a war broke out. So what I'm asking you is as an elite soldier, what indicators in the environment let you know that there's a lot more going on than just uh the typical political bullshit? or something coming in. For example, in Mexico, you have many cases of drug cartels moving in and taking over entire cities. And it started off very slowly with drug pushing here and there. And the next thing you know, you've got like a full-blown mafia type situation and people getting killed and kids getting killed and them taking the entire city over. So I'm asking, what could you tell those people to recognize so they know that there's a real threat in the environment versus just an idiot walking around shooting people as compared to a cartel. Hmm. Like, like, yeah. So I see what you're getting at, like a systematic sort of takeover. The cartel scenario, I think is a a good one like that. Avocados oddly play a big role in that. Avocados. Yeah. 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 The, the, the Mexican cartels are, are quite big in the avocado trade and they'll, they'll take over, farming communities or agricultural communities where avocados are a primary export because they're really profitable. It's funny you mentioned that. I hate to interject, but just uh, I was just told by one of my neighbors that a, a year ago, a, right next to me, someone stole $10,000 worth of avocados out of their orchard. Avocados and mangoes. People love stealing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but avocados are like like green blood diamonds. Like there, There's a lot of violence involved in getting those things across the border. And that's a fairly recent development, you know, like 15 years ago. I don't think the cartels were involved in that. Maybe as, you know, like marijuana is clearly not lucrative to traffic over the border anymore. Um, like maybe maybe they've had to adapt and find other exports to control. But but yeah, avocados are one that drives a, an amazing amount of cartel violence in Mexico. So, so do you have any tips that anybody can use to look at the socio-political environment and say, okay, there's something going on here that's a real problem that could get worse, and I need to be paying attention to what's going on. And like my 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 friend uh, Hannah told me, Hannah Mirabai, she said, Paul, it all began with censorship, and she said, what I see going on in the United States right now looks dangerously like what I lived through in Iraq. I, or I, not Iran. Her, she was in Iran. Okay. Um, I don't know. I honestly struggle to answer that because it's it's not really my area of expertise. Like, 
I've been in all, a lot of those communities where that kind of thing happens. And I, I think they happen in different ways. I think one of the ways to look at it would be through like, have you read um, Hannah Arendt's book, um, Eichmann in Jerusalem? No. Um, a report on the banality of evil. Uh, I, because I, I think about these things sometimes and, and, she looked at, they were looking at a war trial or a war crime trials following the Holocaust and, and talked to, she was following one guy in particular, his name, I believe was Eichmann. Um, he was on trial at, I don't know, where would it have been? Nuremberg? Um, Probably Nuremberg. And the, where they, what they can, or what she concluded, and she traced out a lot of these things was like, this guy wasn't evil. He wasn't like a, like a mastermind. He, he played a, a major role in the Holocaust and killed like 100,000 people or something like that. But he was just a bumbling idiot, kind of Forrest Gumping his way through the Nazi party. And, and that was what happened in, in a lot of cases where there wasn't any like single mastermind. It was just a lot of people kind of like, well, I'm doing my job or whatever. Like it'd be worse if someone else was doing it, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. um, it, it wasn't so much like like a planned evil thing from like this, this monster, you know, like, like the person Hitler was a lot of what happened was from normal people, but I, yeah, I've been in Jerusalem. That's a problem. Is, is a, book on that. <laughs> yeah, you, a lot of what happens is from normal people that should make us all very concerned. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the specific mechanisms are always, at least in the modern era, like somewhat different, you know, like, it could be the rise of authoritarianism. Um, it could be they're, they're completely different and paradoxical ways it could play out. Like one could be the government loses its monopoly on violence. And now say the cartel situation where the cartels are at least as violent as anyone else and have sometimes better weapons and tactics, you know, and, and now the cartels um, sort of run these communities. Uh, say actually in the Middle East, that happens as well, where, um, the Taliban becomes the new police force and people will, will use Taliban courts because they're more effective than um, the the actual like Afghani government courts sometimes because it's such a crippled democracy. So, so there's this like delegitimization of the government, the loss of monopolization on violence by the government. But then at the same time, you can also have a drift towards authoritarianism where the, the government becomes um, like an excessive source of violence, uh, you know, like say Haiti, if you watch the political cycles in Haiti for the last 300 years, um, they've just gone through cycles of Haiti. Haiti originated, the country of Haiti originated as a slave rebellion. They were a French slave colony and a, a lot of the enslaved people that they brought over from Africa were soldiers. So they staged the largest slave revolt in history, took over the island and declared it a free nation. And that's how Haiti was founded. Um, by kicking out slaveholders and sending them back to France. Uh, but tragically, from there, they pretty much just had a cycle of different authoritarian governments who sort of recreated that uh, wealth disparity and um, the plantation system over and over for a very long time. They were, they were crippled by other things economically. They had huge sanctions and had to pay reparations to France for not being slaves anymore, which is weird. But but basically, they've gone through cycles of authoritarianism where, where the government ran everything and everyone had to, their censorship was a big part of it. Voter participation was like 1%. Um, the way they did voting was by having people go into like the voting hall and 
and verbally say whether they wanted a yes ballot or a no ballot to keep the current dictator in place in front of their militia or their army or whatever. Oh, yeah, that's very, very good voting. Yeah, yeah. So weirdly, they always voted like 99% to keep the dictator in place uh, with like 1% voting rates or voting participation rates. So like it can go either way, you know, like a collapse of a government, the rise of militias and things like that, or it could be the the rise of authoritarianism. I mean, both of those things are bad. So I guess the thing that you would be looking for would be uh, the delegitimization of democracy would probably be the thing that's going to, to undermine that or, or be the, the leading indicator in either scenario, whether it trends towards more of an anarchist system or a tribalist system with delegitimate or like the loss of government authority, or if it's an excessive drift towards authoritarianism. In either case, it's a loss of popular representation and, and belief in democracy or a loss in the functioning of democracy. I'm curious. That's like way out of my area of expertise. So, well, that's okay. Your answer was very good. Have you noticed any of those things going on around you lately? I mean, yes and no. I mean, we're not Haiti. No. But, um, yet. <laughs> I hope yeah, not. I, mean, like, I got kids, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've definitely been in in a period of political upheaval for not not even just the reason, like say the past 10, 15, 10 years at least. But it's hard to, to try to pin that down to a single factor. I think um, one of the things you could find would be just increasing polarization and the spread of misinformation, probably. And censorship. Uh, where a lot of people, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, a lot of people are mad about things that are made up. Like, it's really easy to manipulate poorly educated people on the internet. And that's a lot of what happens. Did you know that symbiotica means harmony? And you're really likely to enjoy my podcast with Shervin Jaffaria, the founder of Symbiotica. Symbiotica is an amazing company that makes excellent products to aid healing, enhance longevity, and improve performance at all levels of your being, from your spiritual practices to your athletic endeavors. I highly recommend you go to symbiotica.com and check out their top-notch organically sourced products that include excellent tasting supplements like their Synergy Vitamin B12, which elevates energy naturally, to their J minerals, which help you better regulate your hormonal system. Their biocharge activated coconut charcoal is an excellent detox support and removes toxins and poisons from the body quickly and non-invasively. Their organic longevity formula is one of my friends and students' favorites. They rave about it. I really enjoy their Regenesis Liposomal Glutathione for its amazing antioxidant powers, which is really helpful for anyone that enjoys vaporizing tobacco and herbs like I do. They also have great immune support products, water filtration options for drinking and showering, and some cool clothing and more. When you go to C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com and use your Living 4D discount code, which is capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15 on checkout, you get 15% off anything they sell and you won't be disappointed. Enjoy Symbiotica. How do you as a soldier protect yourself from disinformation or propaganda? For example, my next question is how do you determine reliable intel from um inaccurate intel because that's really uh, information so for us like i mean without without giving away you're touching on tradecraft <laughs> um you look for direct access to information and 
trace out provable assumptions and you verify them through multiple sources. So like this person says this thing and he has a really strong opinion on it is not a like a valid source of information. You have to be able to, to verify the veracity of, of any claim, look for ulterior motives, that kind of thing. Um, but it's it's important to remember like that anybody can say anything, like whether you're in a personal network, you're working in Iraq or something, or like you're on the internet and you know, there there's research on this, misinformation spreads dramatically faster than facts on the internet, especially in social networks designed to be echo chambers, like Facebook is probably the worst one, although there's a lot. Um, generally speaking, if it makes you very angry, it's probably designed to manipulate your attention and your behavior to get you to click on an article and share misinformation by someone who has a, a, some kind of ulterior motive, like they're farming clickbait or whatever. Um, you know, like the even news in general, if you go through Google News, like everyone just does clickbait. It's all like you, like whatever, Jeff Bezos did this thing and you, ha you have no idea what it's about unless you click the article, it's garbage. But one of the things is to try to actively approve, uh, disprove an assumption um, rather than seek for, like rather than seeking out sources of information that validate the assumption, say you've got a guy who says he knows where Bin Laden's hiding or whatever. You don't seek information that corroborates that claim, you seek information that disproves it. Um, You'll do both, but you want to make sure that you're not guiding yourself in an echo chamber of verifying something that that just matches your current biases, like makes you feel good about what you what you think, like or your fear. Yeah, yeah, and th there are, are a lot of examples of that in the study of like catastrophes or military disasters where people, you know, like engaged in a lot of confirmation bias. Like, say, I think there was information prior to Pearl Harbor where like, nah that doesn't seem real or it just got buried in bureaucracy, you know, and they ignored signals they could have paid attention to. The CIA was aware of bin Laden and actually had the opportunity to, to just smoke him in uh, Sudan, I believe, Khartoum, maybe, uh, a long time ago, like in the 90s, well before he was anywhere near 9-11. And, and the CIA and all the other agencies involved in that kind of decision-making was just a, a cluster of competing like personal agendas and, and whatever. And, and people ignored all of those signals and left bin Laden alone until he became a much bigger problem. Um, but, but I guess that's, that's the, the tricky part is sorting through a lot of bullshit and finding real information. And, and the big thing is just, if you trace down like isolated pieces of assumptions or, or stated claims you can you can often prove specific aspects of those claims and memories of the past can be flawed you know like we're not human tape recorders like we will have flawed memories when we're recalling an experience or something like that but if someone says like i know who this person is and where they live and i know that they drive this car at this time or whatever like you'll be able to fact check that through other other sources as an example of that i i've recently had a few people reach out to me because somebody who I've had on my podcast that's actually very famous and is very active right now due to the issues of the world, uh, something's going around saying that he has taken money from Bill Gates, which is <laughs> the complete antithesis of his action. He didn't get, in, he didn't get in any money. Like, uh, who's the other yeah, one? Yeah, Soros, yeah. George Soros money? I got, yeah. Yeah, something like, like that. But 
and, 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 you know, a lot, as, as both of us are probably aware, a lot of people have taken that money. And that's one of the reasons every news channel in the country says the same thing. Every time you turn it on, there's a coordinated message, which it smells pretty bad for someone who's paying attention. But the point I'm driving at is I simply said, well, that's cool. I'm going to email them directly. So I sent him the email. I sent him the video clip that somebody forwarded to me, which was basically looked very much like he was accepting money from Bill Gates. But when I actually got it to him directly, he explained exactly what happened and what the truth was. But without going directly to him, it would be impossible to make the differentiation because the that was just enough of a piece of a video clip to lead you to make some conclusions, but you don't have enough context to really see what it is. So the point I'm driving at is I just went straight to the horse's mouth and got the information. There's actually a video of this guy, like taking a handful of cash from Bill Gates or something. No, no, he was, he was in a meeting discussing a project he was running, which had to do with soil science. But there was, a tie to one of Bill Gates's organizations as a funding organization, which is a complete conflict of interest. And so that it was Robert F. Kennedy Jr. that questioned him on it and said, well, you know, I'm a little concerned about your involvement with such and such an organization because Bill Gates owns that organization. And so it just went crazy. And it was over a year ago, but it's resurfaced now because he's getting quite famous for his, you know, speaking out against what's going on and trying to educate people and, and things like that. So I, I think now it's being used as propaganda type thing. The point being is I just went right to him to get the answer and, and got it cleared up and shared that with uh, the number of people that were reaching out to me because they know I have contact to him and, and were worried that maybe he had switched sides all of a sudden. I, I mean, I'm curious where like misinformation or disinformation technology goes in the next few years, because like deep fake videos are fairly approachable. Like I think, I think pretty much anyone can manage to make one of those with a few days of work. Um, so basically like almost nothing you read or see on the internet can be trusted at face value. Like there's, there, it's so easy to, to manipulate people into believing all kinds of nonsense. Like I, I actually didn't think flat earthers were real for a long time. I thought it was just a, a joke, you know, like a meme. Flat people who believe that the earth is flat. Oh, yes, yes. I, I'm shocked at how many people believe that. I've had many people, even friends, start debating me on that. And I say, look, here's the best thing you can do right now. Stop debating it with me because I, I, I respected you as an intelligent person until you started talking that stuff. And then, but yeah, I thought it was a joke. Like, I, I didn't think that was a real thing that, that people believe, but there, there are, actual people out there who are really committed to that idea and they've created like these echo chamber nests around them uh that they that they feel provide like this incontrovertible evidence that whatever the the moon landing was fake the earth is a pancake we have a game of thrones wall of ice at the edge of it that keeps the boats from falling off <laughs> but there's i don't know like fascinating to me and it's terrible like it's it's so depressing yeah, I, I have two race. responses for those people. One, satellites. <laughs> they can take pictures of the Earth from a long enough away distance away. You can clearly see the Earth is round. Two, Edgar Mitchell is someone who I trust deeply. He walked on the moon. He took pictures of the Earth from outer space. 
and he devoted his life to consciousness research, and there's not one indicator that he would ever bullshit people. And three, and most importantly, I am a remote viewer who has proven in front of 750 people the accuracy of his ability, and I won a contest in remote viewing run by the CIA's director of remote viewing, and I can as easily as I'm talking to you right now, go look at the earth from any distance you want to, and it is not flat. <laughs> There's a great, have you ever seen the video of Buzz Aldrin punching a guy, a uh, flat earth or moon land, a guy who said that the moon landing is fake? Yeah. So Buzz Aldrin, the astronaut, who's one of the first, I don't know, the, one of the first astronauts, dude was probably like 80 years old at the time or something. It was fairly recent. Uh, a guy just confronted him, like a press conference or something about how the earth is flat, the moon is fake and all this. And he just punches him. Like <laughs> it's the, it's the greatest. Like I, I love it. <laughs> well, it is quite a criticism really to an astronaut. Yeah, I mean, it's his life's work and he, yeah. Like you're yeah. saying that your whole life was a sham, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, he was like, he, was, he felt like he was informing Like he's like, you should know or whatever. Like, or he thought he was in on the big lie or I don't know. But, but yeah, Buzz Aldrin punches a guy. Uh, like basically he's in a walker at this point and he's still got the energy to punch him in the face, which is amazing. There you go. That'll, that'll make the earth round for you. Um, what, what are some key food and water, uh, and basic type resources to have on hand in case anything happens from, uh, an earthquake to, um, you know, an er uh, uh, active earth event to, um, maybe uh, a surprise takeover or, uh, you know, like, for example, even the lockdown, a lot of people got caught. Um, they didn't have enough toilet paper. They didn't have, you know, a lot of the things that they needed. So if, you know, do, do you have anything that you keep on hand just as, as an emergency backup or do you just roll? Uh, I mean, we have, I'm not really a prepper type, but, but we, we buy like meat in bulk. I, I go to a, like a local farm that I know and buy a half a cow at a time or like rancher people will get mad about the way I say that. It's a side of beef, I believe or something like that. But, but we have like a few hundred pounds of meat in the freezer most of the time. Um, stable electricity is a thing. This is another one I don't personally do well. But having like a battery backup system or like some new electric cars will just power your house if your power cuts out, like that kind of stuff is extremely useful. Um, if I you're, never heard of the electric car. That's good to know. Yeah, I'm not sure which one's. I think the new Ford's coming out. The, oh, um, my wife's looking at buying one. <laughs> yeah, I mean. She just yeah. told me you need to go look at this with me. And I, so I think they're going to do well with it. And that's one of their cells. They're, they're pointing at like, say, Texas when when everything froze and everything was going to shit like last year, um, the Ford EVs would be able to just power a house for quite a while. Well, you can just leave the engine running and it'll charge the battery. So as long as you're not excluding or draining it faster than it can charge, at least you could get something out of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's the 12-volt battery, though. Like, they're talking about, like, kilowatts of I guess some of, of them power. don't. some of them don't have um, engines anymore. They're straight electric, so that wouldn't be... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's there's no gas in them. They're just a, a giant lithium battery um, that'll power that'll run your like air conditioning, your fridge, your whatever like heavy stuff for for a long time. That's cool. I, I don't do that well. Like there's also battery packs for homes. Like the best I manage is a little backup battery that's on my Wi-Fi modem if power goes out. But I did like traveling kind of stuff, deployment kind of stuff. Like you're living out of a backpack for a long time, which is kind of the same thing. A fat source is something that people forget about 
pretty often. Like you end up with a bunch of protein powder and like you have oatmeal or whatever. Like carbs are shelf stable, pretty easy to find. You know, um, you can get freeze dried potatoes or whatever. Rice, things like that, keep forever, and and they're really you know a forty pound bag of rice will keep you for a long time. Um, but fat sources can be tough because they're harder to preserve. And I found that like in Iraq when I was just living out of a backpack for a long time, uh, like a saturated fat source was, was tough to find. I actually ended up with powdered egg yolks for a while that I added to some of my meals or just a shake. So it was disgusting. And uh, coconut oil, things like that, that were a saturated fat source. Cause if you're not going to go find like processed garbage shit from a gas station, um, you're not going to have any saturated fat in your diet unless you have a chicken. <laughs> like, yeah, if you seal butter, it'll last a long time. But ghee has a very, very long shelf life, and ghee, ghee is a you know, it's clarified butter. So, I know, uh, you know, from my trips up trip up to Alaska, we were you know looking at these different rolled gold mining routes and stuff. And one of the uh, we were on the train that one of the famous trains that's been there since the gold rush, and the guy was telling us what the supplies were that they would the gold miners would take, he said they'd usually take like 60 pounds of butter because it was the most important survival uh, food they had um, was butter. So I think keeping some ghee on because you don't have to worry about it rotting, but you know, like if, if you keep butter sealed, it can last a long time and it's super good source of stable energy. Cause like you said, carbohydrate sources are a lot easier to come by or even find out in nature but fat sources are very, very important for sustaining you. Do you, do you have a specific uh, water bottle type that has a filtration system or anything so you can uh, have a bit less chance of getting poisoned by water? Uh, we have a whole house filter on our house. Um, I meant, I meant for emergency, like if you, if you have to go out into the I, woods or something. Yeah, when I was operational, I did. We had a few different methods. Um, at the time, they were just coming out with like portable filters that, that were decent. But we relied pretty heavily on, on like iodine tablets, or there's a similar one that's maybe chlorine based. It's pretty disgusting and probably terrible for your gut health. But but we would use that quite a bit. And then ideally, that was right around when like MSR filters were coming out and stuff. You'd chlorinate it or use iodine or whatever to kill any pathogens in it, and then you would filter it, filter it, and try to get a lot of that shit back out. And you're also removing like sediments and impurities and stuff, but you need something that sanitizes it generally, which can be an ugly picture. But now there's way better technology for that. They make like portable light set, light pens and um, mechanical filters that, that have a pretty high throughput that last for a long time that are reliable. Like there's even, I've never used them, but like Life Stick, I think is one of them. Um, Life Straw. That, that's basically like a filter straw that supposedly you can just drink out of a mud puddle with if you're oh, in cool. like one of those survival that's situations. That's good to know about. I'm glad you shared that. I know we, you know, we've been going for a while. I don't want to burn you out. So I'll whistle through these last couple of questions. Are there any tips you would give for protecting children in dangerous environments? Have you ever had to move children? No, <laughs> honestly, no, I, I, that's not really like an area of expertise that I have. I don't have kids. I, I mean, I have nieces and nephews, but I, I don't really have a great answer for that aside from it'd be the same things you do to keep yourself safe if if you're looking at active threats from people you watch for anomalies and patterns a really interesting thing in that we were talking about like gut instincts and feedback loops would be to talk to like bouncers and bartenders ah. if you ever know someone who works at like say a shitty bar or 
strip clubs, places where people like there's a lot of shitty people doing violent things or like it can pop off fast. Someone who's been exposed to that as an occupation has seen and developed their their gut instincts for it. And it can be fun to just sit there with them and have them observe a crowd and just narrate their thoughts or their their assessments of people. Like, look at that person, what they're doing. Look at that person, what they're doing. This is what I see. This is what they're likely to do. And you can make little short-term predictions and kind of turn it into a perceptual learning exercise. Like, what's that person going to do in the next two minutes based on what you see right now? And someone who's been kind of immersed in that violent or, you know, like, uh, what's the word, unstable environment, um, they'll have really good instincts for that. And they're, they're super fun to talk to. Well, actually, I've interviewed uh, somebody that's exactly that, a professional bodyguard named Michael Holt, who's one of my students. And we talked more about his martial arts training and other things, but I might have to get him back and, and have a conversation with him about that. Um, you know, the reason I bring that up is because uh, there's three counties in California now where uh, they're forcing man mandatory vaccinations on children. And, uh, you know, so people are losing their sovereignty. And whether you're pro-vax or not, uh, I think we're all pro-freedom in this country. And so uh, we we begin to get a bit concerned about that. And I've also seen videos on the Internet of, of people going to schools and vaccinating children without their parents' con consent. And it's happened a ton in Canada. I've seen I've got many students and friends in Canada that have seen it and even had family members, uh, kids get vaccinated, uh, being drawn in by ice cream and, and dance uh, parties and things like that. And all of a sudden they're in line, someone's vaccinating them. And uh, so I'm, I'm kind of like thinking, okay, we need to all start being more aware of how to protect our children because there's people with some very ulterior motives right in our backyard right now. And, and so that was the reason for my question. I mean, I, is it is it that that they're vaccinating kids without parental consent, or that they're requiring them to be vaccinated to like go to kindergarten or something? Because like describing videos like that, that immediately brings to mind just like misinformation on the internet to me. Like it seems highly implausible. Well, there's actually three counties that have uh, passed laws saying that it's mandatory vaccination, and parents are being fined $30,000 if they resist and sometimes having their children taken away and put into protective custody. Uh, my wife, Angie's part of uh, parenting groups and they share information and warn each other about actual events going on. So that triggered us all to think, holy shit, if that's happening in California already, it's a bit unnerving. Um, so it wasn't propaganda. It was actually parents from different counties talking to each other. Yeah, I, personally, I'm skeptical of anything that comes out of a Facebook group or any other. No, it like, wasn't a Facebook. Go, it's not a Facebook group. It's a. It's it's sort of like if you started a group of friends that are all CrossFitters and you're talking to each other about your exercise performance. And having looked into what's going on in the state of California, it, it could be very possible. Um, now, I can't say for a hundred percent sure that it's not propaganda. But when you start looking at what's going on in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, it's right lockstep with what's going on there. And I have lots of students reporting exactly what's going on from the ground. And I've seen hand shot videos of it actually happening. So, Of kids being lured to vaccine clinics with ice cream? Oh, absolutely. In Canada, there's been news reports of it. And I've actually had people that have friends whose kids ended up there and got vaccinated 
without their parents' consent or even realizing that it had happened until the kid told them. I, I'm going to be honest, I'm skeptical. Well, you can be skeptical all you want, but I'm getting firsthand reports. I've probably got, I would guess, 150 students in Canada who live right there and are telling me these things directly. But, okay. you know, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with being skeptical, but I also say keep your eyes open, too. Um, here's a kind of a nice closing question for you. It's very easy to get caught in the world, particularly during times like we're going through in the world today. What strategies do you use to be in the world, but not caught in the world so that you can maintain your sanity and, and keep your stress from getting higher than is necessary? There was a, I was Nassim Taleb, the guy who wrote the black swan, um, brought up a thing about like sample rates of information basically like if you pay attention to the news constantly like 12 hours a day most of what you're going to absorb is going to be bullshit it's going to be pointless and it's not going to matter in five years if you step that out and you you spend like a couple hours once a week like the the quality of what you pick up like the things that are going to make it through that filter will be a little bit better if you check the news like once a month, then the things that have washed out of that news cycle that don't matter are already going to be washed out. Like your your fidelity rate or the, the the value of the information you get from it is going to improve. So, so I think one of the things is to limit your exposure to information and give give things time to matter. Um, like if you're continually exposed to stuff, like if you're if you're chasing a 24 hour news cycle or refreshing Google News or searching whatever. It, you're you're going to be swimming through so much bullshit to find anything that matters that you're probably doing so at the expense of every other aspect of your life. So I think the first thing is just stay off the internet. Like I, I really miss that about deployments, being being overseas or downrange somewhere where I just didn't connect to the outside world. Like I talked to my brother on sat phone every couple of weeks and he'd tell me what, like, if anything actually mattered that was happening. And generally nothing did matter. Um, and I, I'd have such a better sense of like peace of mind than, than in our current environment where we have like continual exposure to information, most of which is nonsense. Um, like, like our, you know, social media in particular, it's designed to foment fear and anger and spread information in echo chambers of people who use each other for references. You know, like uh, low information literacy is often combined with a high openness to ideas and a distrust of expertise that produces all kinds of problems. So I think basically just like we talked about flat earthers, you know, like, like there are, there are all these dedicated echo chambers that are just not, that are the products of these systems. That like they're what these systems are built to produce. And some of those systems are actively manipulated by people who love to see uh, division or polarization among Americans. And I think it's worth keeping in mind, like that's, that's what a lot of like Russian ads were bought for was they, they didn't have a particular agenda other than getting Americans to fight with each other and tear each other apart. So if you're buying into that system at all, you're you're buying and you're doing someone else's job. Like some Russian teenager is probably getting a promotion because you just spent an hour on Facebook, like getting you to read bullshit. So like I mean if you're if you're trying to verify something, go down to to real facts, like things that have a basis in science. Look for a reputable scientific journal that has been published in, like trace out their assumptions. There is a scientific process and there are scientists who can explain it. If you're if you're someone who doesn't, you know, like you're not trained in this, like you don't know how to comb through statistics or validate research, like 
there are people who will help you that'll that'll walk you through it. If you're looking at supplements or something like that, there are sites that aggregate information like uh, examine.com is, is fairly useful for that. Um, you know, like Labdoor publishes you know tests on on lab data for for other supplements and stuff. But for the most part, if you're just trying to not be overwhelmed by the flood of bullshit and fear and misinformation and, and all that stuff that's out there, just disengage from it. It's like the ice cream thing. If you don't want to eat ice cream every day, don't put ice cream in your house. So if you don't want to be bothered by a bunch of like nonsense, stressful, anger and fear inducing information, take Facebook off your phone. Like don't don't like I have software that locks it out. I haven't touched Facebook since like 2015. Yeah, um, I don't I, I don't have it for work, it. but you know, like all that social media shit, like I keep it off my phone. I have an Instagram account for work, but I don't otherwise spend time on it. And reflecting back to that like willpower thing, I don't do that by gritting my teeth and like trying to avoid these algorithms that are designed to manipulate my attention. I just have software that keeps me from touching it. Like if I try to open Instagram, I'll have a little thing pop up on my phone that tells me to put fucking off. And that's, 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 <laughs> that's how great. I, that's how I avoid it. Like I know, like if you ever open Instagram or like Instagram is mine, other people have whatever YouTube is a buddy of mine gets sucked into YouTube easily. Like there are a lot of engineers who are really good at manipulating your attention and getting you to click the next thing and go down rabbit holes and whatever. And you'll lose hours of your life reading dumb shit. That's probably made up. Like I just block it all. Like, and that's, I think that's one of the only ways to really defend yourself against that is to just cut it out of your life. And don't give them permission to take away your attention and your, your sanity. Yeah, there's a guy named Nir Ayal who wrote a book called yeah. Hooked. Yeah, I've interviewed him. I've got a podcast with him. And so his second book was how he got himself unhooked. <laughs> I've read one of them. I don't, distractible or indistractable? Yeah, indistractable. That's the second one. That, that was, yeah, okay, that's the one I read. That was his process of unhooking himself from the very technology he developed <laughs> or or helps develop. I can't remember the whole story. It's been a while, but... But yeah, I don't personally, I only, my, my, the Institute has a Facebook account. I have an Instagram account, but I don't look at it. I just, I usually have Penny or someone post. I strictly use it as a tool for business. And, um, I hardly ever know what's going on. People say, oh, I saw your post. I go, oh, really? What was in it? <laughs> Cause I, <laughs> I don't, I don't put them up that my film crew comes here usually once every two weeks and I'll shoot a bunch of stuff that they can use. But point I'm making is. The way, I haven't watched normal television in so many years. I don't even what, know what's on there. Um, we live on top of a mountain in, in, on 14 acres, and you would not know anything's going on out here until you picked up a phone or turned on some kind of device, which is phenomenal because my kids just live a gorgeous life out here. And I have I have no interest in, in a lot of this shit. But when I get uh, information shared with me from people that I trust, then I start looking into it and asking questions. And there's been enough information from people I trust that's concerned me deeply. I've been doing a lot of research. I've actually spent about 600 hours researching what's going on. And the deeper I got, the worse it looked. So the, the kids thing, like I, my wife and I spent a lot of time in Costa Rica in this little beach town. And I, I, I love being there because it's of like an incredibly active place you know it's very family oriented there's no nightlife really there's no bars or anything um so basically like you, you're surfing or doing yoga or eating probably a papaya or something like the food's really good but it's also very very like local basic stuff um and it's really interesting like if you sit at a restaurant and watch kids play there um 
They don't mess with iPads. They're not on phones. They don't give a shit about any of that. They're running around chasing each other on the beach, playing in the sand, rolling around. Like they're six-year-olds that know how to surf. Um, and they're like, if you're there, you'll feel, because there's so much to do, so much like enriching, fulfilling, enjoyable stuff to do um, that you don't care about what's on your phone or whatever. Like you, you'll, you know, like it's pretty easy to just, leave your phone locked in a safe because petty crime is a thing and just forget about it for a day or two because you're off surfing, you're hanging out with your friends, you're eating, you're, you know, like you're doing shit that, that is meaningful and that really matters. And you can see a huge difference in the kids. If you go sit at a restaurant there on the beach in Costa Rica, watch the five and six year olds kids run around and the way they behave, like they're emotionally stable, they're mature, they're, they're able to articulate things. They can play independently. Yes. They're creative. Yeah. Yeah. And then you go to a a restaurant in the U S where there's going to be a bunch of kids running around. It'll be a fucking nightmare. And they're just staring at video games and yeah, yeah. They're all, they're staring at an iPad or whatever. And yeah. Everything that you said about the dangers of Facebook, uh, false intel and all that shit. If you look at how the average American child lives today, especially since lockdown, it's face glued to phones and tablets 24-7, meaning every moment of the day they're awake, they're almost always engaged in video games, Facebook, all sorts of shit. And it's so freaking dangerous when your kids are tapped into that because they lose touch with reality. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're losing their ability to physically move as kids, like... I think, and, and I, I think that comes about uh, as like a band-aid or, or a symptom of a greater problem. Like if you feel the need to be buried in social media or the news or whatever, like stare at your phone all day, you know, like all, whatever you're doing is occupied by a glowing white rectangle. Like it's probably because there's something kind of fundamentally wrong in your environment and you need something, you need better shit to do realistically like you know our parents told us that or your dad pretty much just beat your ass it sounds like but our parents told us that as kids like you need something better to do with your time than this and and they meant it like go play outside go do something real and i i think that's where like when you do that like say the last time you took a vacation um like i right now i'm in colorado i have a view of the mountains and then there's a mountain biking trail straight across from me and the last time I went on like a a camping trip with my wife. We just sat by a river and read books. We went on little hikes. We played with our dog for like three or four days in a place with no cell phone reception. Like at first you feel this kind of pull to go play with your phone to check your text messages, you know, like to be attached to this device. Like you'll touch your pocket because you think you just felt your phone vibrate, even though you don't have a phone in your pocket. Like you're just a programmed little monkey. Um, but, but once you're immersed in a world where that's taken away for a bit and you have meaningful shit to do, like spending time with loved ones and engaging in the physical world and eating real food and stuff like that, you'll look at your phone or your iPad or whatever and be like, why did I ever even care about this thing? And it's, it's just, it's, it's a symptom of a disease sort of, I think. And it's that people just don't have shit, better shit to do. And, and that's the real problem. One of the problems is, is I think you're hip to the fact it's an engineered disease that's captured the world. I mean, there's not that many parents out there in the world today whose kids have nature to play in or who make the effort to take them to parks or who have a dog to play with or, or actually use art and uh, cut things with scissors and use a blackboard or make shit out of stuff. Like 
when I grew up, none of that crap was around. I mean, when I, when I was a kid, faxes haven't even invented yet. So I've watched all this shit happen and watched how the whole world's changed. But when you start looking at, at documentaries like Social Dilemma on Netflix and many others, you start really seeing that there is a corporate takeover of the minds of the children, particularly, and the people of the world. And it's leading us into some very dangerous situations. And that's part of the reason I was asking you a lot of the questions like, what is real intel and what isn't? And, you know, how do you know when you really are facing a threat and when you're not? Because the, the technology that they're using to get people to buy stuff, control their emotions, and trick them into living a lifestyle that's profitable to the people that own the technology is actually the same technology that they're using to fill their heads full of uh, stories and also uh, support corporate agendas that, that go against our, uh, our sovereign rights and our constitutional rights. And, and that's you know, why people like Robert F. Kennedy are being very, very vocal right now about what's going on. Because as a man who's got a history of being involved in politics at a high level and a senator, he's very, very aware that we're we um, falling into a dangerous trap that's largely driven by uh, digital technology. Uh, where where can people find more about your book or any other resources you want to share? I, I really think you gave us some great advice today and helped open the minds of a lot of people to a lot of different ways of looking at things and great training concepts and self-development concepts. And I know from looking through your book, it's loaded. It's a, it's a real full-on manual that you know, and I think there's a lot of stuff parents could use in there to train their kids to be better athletes and just better human beings, to be quite honest with you. Um, so where do people find your book and, and any other resources you'd like to share? Um, the book, most of what we do lives on, on our website, buildingtheelite.com. And then our main social media presence is Instagram, as we talked about. <laughs> we, uh, we do... The tool on there about once a day. Yeah. Yeah. The, at, the way that actually works is I schedule it a week in advance or so, and I try not to look at it. Um, but yeah, we, we use Instagram. That's, you'll find some like daily content. That's like coaching stuff. A lot of it comes from like our, like conversations with the clients that we're coaching and, and people seem to find that quite useful. Um, but otherwise building the you can find the book there. Um, we can distribute most places in the world we're working on pulling ourselves off of amazon we've been using them for international distribution and they're not very good at it so we're starting to just mail the books ourselves around the world i see um but yeah building that's where everything's at that's fantastic well craig thank you this is definitely the longest podcast i've ever done <laughs> you yeah. did but it's probably one of the deepest and most meaningful i hope or i have to go back to the drawing board yeah, yeah, no, this is good. This is definitely not just a bunch of verbal listicles, which is enjoyable. Yeah, well, <laughs> thank you to my listeners. I really appreciate it. I hope you guys learned a lot from Craig today. I can't encourage you enough to buy his book. It's the real deal. It's like a thorough training, and, and it's very well written. It's it's actually easy to read. You laid it out really well, Craig. It's not mm. like a lot of books. There's so much information packed, and it makes your head hot, tired looking at it. But you did a really good job of spacing it out. Uh, I like the client stories, the kind of call outs, lots of good pictures, very, very beautifully laid out book. So thank you for that. And thank you to our sponsors for all the great products you produce, your sustainable practices and supporting the planet. And um, I look forward to sharing more with all of you guys. And uh, we got lots more great 
podcast coming your way and feel free to track Craig down. Some of you might want to get some training from him and uh, maybe get on his waiting list and he'll teach you how to be a bona fide real badass instead of a, a fake one. So lots <laughs> of love to all of you. And thank you again, Craig. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Craig Weller. You can find Craig's book, Building the Elite, and many other articles on training the best operators in the world at buildingtheelite.com. Follow Craig on Instagram at buildingtheelite or follow Precision Nutrition at Precision Nutrition. You can also find out more about the specialized courses offered by Precision Nutrition on their website at precisionnutrition.com. Follow Paul Check on Instagram at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living4d with Paul Check. Watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and get your free subscription to Czech videos and more at the Czech Institute's new media site, chikiva.com. Remember, you can read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at czechinstitute.com forward slash podcast. 